You are listening to episode 100 of the Tennis Files podcast. We made it! Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files podcast. And who am I kidding? This isn't just another episode, it's actually episode 100. And I'm happy to announce that I've made it to 100 and that's it, I'm out. I'm done. No, I'm kidding. Of course not. I love tennis and I'm going to keep it going for sure. And today is a very special episode here that I have put together for you. I spent a lot more time on this than usual. And uh, what it's going to be actually is a compilation of some of the best episodes that I have had on the podcast. So a bunch of interviews with a lot of my favorite people, uh, a bunch of clips that I really thought um, really helped tennis players, uh, have helped them worldwide uh, improve their tennis games. And, you know, I wish I could include all the podcasts, but then this would be about uh, 100 hours long, probably more. But in any case, I am really excited to unveil this episode for you, and I hope that you really take a lot from it as I did. And I want to bring the very first clip or introduce it to you. And the first clip here is by Dr. Mark Kovacs. He is one of the the best, most well-known sports science experts in the game today. He is the founder of the International Tennis Performance Association, of which I'm a very proud member, as well as the Kovacs Institute. Uh, He and his wife, Mary Jo, do a fantastic job. Uh, putting together all the programs in those organizations. And you're going to hear some great points about strength and conditioning. And uh, with this clip, along with the other ones, I'm going to just kind of give my comments on the clips that you hear. So I'm going to add to all of these fantastic interviews, uh, just kind of a combination of summarizing and, and my viewpoints on on these points as well. So, but it's pretty much a lot of agreement with them and uh, admiration for all these wonderful experts. Uh, as they often say, everybody stands on the shoulders of giants. And so I've learned a lot from all of these wonderful people. But first up is Dr. Mark Kovacs. How would you prioritize and address uh, the different elements of tennis fitness when we're trying to plan out our training? Sure. So it's a really, really good question. And everyone's at a different stage of their tennis development. At younger ages, there's certain things you want to focus on more. At older ages, there's things you really need to prioritize. Uh, you know, the, the thing with most tennis players are from a speed, power, uh, strength perspective, a lot of that is based at the foundation on your strength level. So you need to make sure that you are doing some form of strength training 
that's really the foundation for a lot of other physical capabilities. So strength is one component that needs to be a priority. The other is your endurance. You've got to make sure that you can last a match because we know plenty of players that are great in the first set, but by the third set, they've got nothing left in the tank. So strength on one end of the spectrum, endurance on the other. And then the third big piece is this flexibility slash mobility area, which you've got to have the right range of motion. You've got to be able to get into the right positions correctly so that you can really utilize the energy appropriately, meaning that the energy from the ground up through your entire kinetic chain out into the ball. And that's where the great players, the efficient athletes, do a great job and they get injured less typically. Uh, and they're individuals that are less efficient. They're always using the wrong body parts to create their power. They're adjusting at the last minute to make contact with the ball. Those are the play- players that typically have more issues in the long run. Right. Uh, that's fantastic. I mean, I remember seeing a picture of uh, Tommy Paul in, in the uh, book uh, that we're talking about, Complete Conditioning for Tennis. And uh, just a beautiful balance that he has at the end of the stroke. And that's uh, that attributes to his physical fitness and balance and flexibility and everything, uh, you know, rolled into one. Uh, in your view, Mark, and in your experience, which one of the fitness elements that you've uh, explained to us is most lacking in the majority of amateur tennis players? So when we're talking amateur tennis players and more so adult amateur tennis players, mm-hmm. a lot of what you see as a limitation is general um, body strength, not necessarily absolute strength, not how much can you lift one time, but the ability to sort of repeat that movement. So muscular endurance strength is really one of the areas where we see a, a lot of people are lacking, meaning that when I ask someone to do a single leg squat, for example, many of them really struggle to be able to you know, put weight through their hip and through their lower limbs without collapsing or falling one way or the other. And that's a really, really important factor because a lot of what happens on a ground-based sport like tennis is, is all the energy comes through the lower body, through the hips. And if the hips and the core region is not strong and stable, doesn't have that stability, we lose energy, but then we also have to recruit other muscles to allow us to make contact with the ball. And that's where we see a lot of the problems stem from. So if you had to name one area, it would be you know, really developing good muscular endurance. Sometimes people will call this uh, stability, uh, the ability to stabilize in these positions effectively. So we want to make sure we've got stability with muscular endurance. That's fantastic. And so... You know, regarding tennis musculature, um, you know, you discuss in depth uh, the physical demands of the game and the muscles used in tennis. And I'm curious also, uh, what is one critical muscle group that tennis players tend to ignore and undertrain? Yeah, it's a great, great question. I mean, we used to say it was the core, the core Mm -hmm. region. I think a lot of people now understand that, that that's really, really important. So a lot more people are now training the entire core region. Uh, Still, sometimes they're doing it with the wrong exercises or doing it the wrong way and recruiting the wrong groups of muscles. But that area at least is more of a focus. Uh, One area that doesn't get enough attention is the lower limb. So the calf all the way down to the ankle because that's really your last major muscle groups and then the last major joint before ground contact. And we know that everything that we can get energy-wise into the ball comes from the ground. 
So if we have a weak link at the ankle and through the calf, then everything further up the chain is limited. So really emphasize that ability to have good range of motion throughout the calf muscles, uh, have good stability through the ankles, uh, and then really be able to generate enough force through that that we can transfer up through the body and out into the ball. So you know, one of the areas that we see is quite limited in most tennis players, and it's not a major focus, is that calf through the ankle area, especially in the amateur adult players. And so with that, what is perhaps one exercise that we can implement right now um, to strengthen that area? So there's really a couple good ones for the calf. I mean, one, you want to make sure you stretch it out daily. Uh, Calves Mm -hmm. tighten up. Most players' calf muscles are rather tight, so we want to be doing calf stretching. Most people are familiar with the the most common ones. You know, you can push against a wall and lean forward, and that'll stretch your calf. You can put your foot up against a wall uh, and then lean your body forward, stretching out your calf muscles. So that's two stretches that are really, really beneficial. Uh, and then the other area is really doing, you know, body weight squats is really good. That does more than just the calves. But if you do body weight squats on a regular basis and try to get lower each day, it's going to help give you some strength down in the lower limbs, not only the calves, but also the hips as well. And that can really be advantageous to individuals that are using their legs a lot when they play tennis. They're on, on court for multiple hours and You've got to have your engine, which is your legs, working you know, at, at a good clip on a regular basis, and you need to train that effectively. Fantastic. And I know that you, uh, amazingly, this, this uh, book that you co-authored has you know, about 56 videos in it explaining uh, you know, most of the critical exercises uh, that you mentioned. But you, meant, you also uh, said that we should try to be going a, a lower each time we squat. And I was curious, you know, there's different, um, I guess, philosophies on how low we should go, but are we talking parallel or maybe lower than that? Yeah, really good question. Because most individuals struggle to get very low, especially the older you get, the stiffer you become in general, unless you're doing structured flexibility and mobility training. Uh, You know, a while back, there was a big, um, you know, advice to for most people to not go below parallel. It would put more pressure on your knees, uh, and that's what a lot of people thought. And if it's done correctly, that's not necessarily true. But unfortunately, a lot of people are very stiff and very tight. So in general, you want to make sure that you get to parallel. That's goal number one. And then if you're planning on trying to get below parallel, it's not necessarily a negative. I do that with a lot of the, nearly all the athletes I work with, I get below parallel. But it's under control and it's with correct technique. The challenge is the moment you get below parallel, things start to change in your posture, especially at the lower lumbar spine area. And if you don't know what you're doing in that position, you will sort of cheat to get that extra range. And that's not what we want. So that's why in general, if you're working out by yourself, if you don't have a trained person who's working with you, helping you on technique, you want to play it safe on that. And, you know, just go to parallel. But if you are working with a trained person who knows what they're doing, going below parallel is actually really beneficial because when we're on a tennis court, we have to get ourselves in all sorts of positions. We're lunging, we're sliding, we're getting below the height of the ball, you know, so we need to be trained in all those type of movements that we may experience on a tennis court. 
Right, uh, I appreciate that information. I, I just love uh, squats are one of my favorite exercises. So I can't help but ask you these two quick follow-up questions. Uh, one is, you know, there's the high bar squat and the low bar squat, I guess, primarily. And there, there's also overhead squat as well. I mean, is there, you know, one in particular that you would favor over all the others? Or is it, you know, would we just use all of them uh, at different points in our training? Yeah, so there's a lot of squat variations. You know, where you position the bar is one aspect. Where you position your arms, whether you, you know, whether you go a wide grip, a narrow grip on the squat, uh, the, the, whether you do a front squat or a back squat, uh, whether you go an overhead squat, whether you then change it up with dumbbells or with um, kettlebells or goblets. There's all sorts of variations to perform a squat movement. The the, the question that you have to ask yourself is what's the safest version for me based on my body shape, based on any limitations I, I may have. So, you know, barbell squatting is great if the athlete has stability, has good technique, has the ability to get in the right positions. However, many tennis players, especially adult tennis players, barbell squatting may not be the preferred model. It may be a form of dumbbell squatting, band squatting, you know, k- kettlebell type squats, there's a lot of variations there. The big question you have to ask yourself is, am I targeting the front of my legs? Am I targeting my glutes, uh, my butt muscles? Am I targeting my hamstrings? Depending on how you squat, you can change which muscles get recruited to a higher percentage. So there's a lot to it. Um, in general, most people don't think like that. They're like, hey, I just want to work my legs out. I'm going to do a squat and I'm going to get everything all at once, which is true. You are going to recruit your quads, your hamstrings, your glutes, your back muscles, your core muscles, your calves are involved. So that's why squatting is a great exercise because it's a total body movement. Uh, but it's important to understand that you know certain positions in a squat can cause potential issues if they're not done correctly, just like playing tennis. If you hit a tennis stroke with the wrong technique, you're going to get yourself in trouble over time. It may not happen on the first rep, but if you continually – hit the ball with the wrong technique, you are likely to hurt yourself. And it's the same thing in the weight room. So you've got to be smart about how you structure your your routines uh, and progress appropriately. The biggest thing is gradual progression. And we see that with too many people when they haven't worked out for a while, they get back in the gym, and then they start on a routine. And the first couple of days, they feel great because they're not sore, they haven't done much. Uh, but the problem is they do too much the first few days. And that's where we see, and I, I see, because a lot of people come to me p- potentially with issues. They, they, you know, they've got an injury or they've got a soreness that doesn't go away. And that's really important for that a- amateur tennis player. Fantastic stuff from Dr. Mark Kovacs. And that was actually taken from episode 33 of the Tennis Files podcast. So if you want to check that one out in its entirety, you can go to tennisfiles.com slash 33. A lot of great lessons here from Dr. Kovacs. The first one is that you must always be doing some form of strength training as well as endurance training and also really concentrate on your flexibility and mobility. I can really tell you from experience that especially as I've gotten older into my 30s, I have found that I am more sore and less mobile and flexible, especially. So I really need to devote that time every day to 
stretching and to mobility exercises and to make sure I also have the strength and endurance components in my training as well at a respectable frequency within the week so that I can play well and feel good on the court. And a very interesting finding, but not surprising, that most adult amateur players are lacking the most in muscular endurance strength. So that's something to really keep an eye out for. And a lot of great concentration needs to go to the hips and core if you find that you're lacking in those areas because it's just so crucial uh, to have great hip strength because a lot of power comes from the hips and the core. Um, so both of those areas is is really big. I have a very interesting finding by, or actually observation by Dr. Kovacs when I asked him about the area uh, that players in, in their bodies that they kind of neglect, which is the calf uh, and ankle areas, um, ha- having a lack of mobility uh, in those areas as well. And I'm sorry, I couldn't help it. I really love squatting, and it was super cool to hear Dr. Kovacs talk about how far you can get down on the squat and uh, very key, especially if you're going below parallel, you just really want to make sure that your form is is great. Otherwise, you do have an increased risk of uh, certain injuries, and there's no one-size-fit-all for squats. Um, a squat that may be good for you may not be good for somebody, especially given their physical capabilities and, as I mentioned, how mobile and flexible they are in certain parts of their body. So a lot of great points there. really appreciate that from Dr. Mark Kovacs, a legend in the game, especially as far as sports performance goes. And for the next clip, I want to introduce you, as you, well, you probably already know him, Paul Anacone. He coached Roger Federer, Pete Sampras, Tim Henman, Sloane Stevens, among many other great players. And uh, he's just a fantastic individual. And you're going to hear a couple clips from my interview with him a little while back. And I hope you really enjoy it. So without further ado, here it is. Is there anything, because I know it sounds like you definitely had a sort of a mental shift after that, but did you change anything in particular in your processes or your, your daily habits or anything like that after your, your first setback uh, to help you, you know, come back uh, even stronger? You know, I, th- I actually think what I did is initially actually started working too hard. I, I actually wanted things too bad, um, too badly. And, and I think that that was one of the shifts I had to make was that there's a big difference between working hard and working smart. And at 27, 28, you think you know a ton. And then when you have a little bit of fear instilled in your process that your career could be over, then you really put your kind of foot on the gas. And I worked really hard. But if anything, I kind of overtrained. Um, I overtrained a little bit. But more importantly, I kind of forgot what got me to be a really uh, world-class player. And I tried to spend way too much time on things that I didn't do well in the tennis court. And that's a dangerous thing because what happens is if you don't do things well and you spend a ton of time on them, it gets pretty frustrating because you're not giving yourself very much positive reinforcement. 
So it took me a while to start to learn how to get the balance of shoring up my weaknesses, but don't forget what your strengths are and make sure you maximize them. That's great stuff, Paul. And I'm just curious to dig a little deeper in that. I mean, I know that, you know, obviously you were a great servant volleyer, um, but so when you talk about uh, kind of overtraining, uh, what what areas did you kind of maybe cut back on a bit so that you were ensuring that you were just, uh, that you were training uh, maximally on your strengths and, and things like that? Well, I think what I started to do is I, I got pretty um, over the top about um, kind of off-court training. I spent a lot of time running. I spent a lot of time on the track. I lost a ton of weight. Um, and I thought that this aerobic conditioning would be great for me. When in actuality, I think I went a little bit too far with that. And I lost some of the power in my movement. Um, and I was training in a way that probably wasn't suited to my style of tennis game. And so what happened was I had a better aerobic base, but I kind of lost a little bit of um, explosivity kind of this, a little bit of the explosiveness, the ability to really um, cover the net and do things that got me to where I was. So it, look, there's, there's, you know, I just think that every, anyone that thinks that there's one answer to everything's in for a rude awakening. And especially in tennis, when you get so much information, things constantly shift, you know, when you have to be really thoughtful and on your toes to be kind of pragmatic and kind of um, uh, really unemotional about reacting to your environment. Because if you let emotion kind of flood in, I find that it's very difficult to progress because you have too many highs. Um, I'm sorry, too many lows and, and the highs are there. But the biggest thing is the extreme, the difference between the two is so vast that it really kind of beats you up. It becomes an emotional roller coaster. Right, Paul. And so Pete talked about how you're, you know, very even keel guy. And so uh, to kind of build upon the point, I mean, what were some things that you maybe did in your daily life that helped you stay even keel? Because it's really tough, especially on the tour. I mean, there's a lot of things that I think normal tennis players would, would be driven insane about, like the pressures to, to win and get the points mm -hmm. and get the money. So what are some things that maybe we could take away from what you did to become more even keel? Well, I think part of it was getting comfortable in that environment. Look, everybody's environment's a little bit different. And as you go through your process as a pro tennis player, things change, expectations, pressures, both self-imposed and what's real. Um, and so for me to be with Pete, initially I was pretty young. Um, and I, um, you know, I think I was 32 when we started together. And, and I, I, his ex-coach who was battling brain cancer at that time, mm -hmm. Tim Gullickson, was a great mentor to me. He really helped me understand the way to go through all of these great experiences, but pressure-packed ones. You know, Pete was supposed to win everything. So that adds a lot of pressure when you are at tournaments and then you have appearances and sponsor commitments. And so for me, you know, the, the habits that I had I really kind of go back to, to my parents mostly. They're both school teachers. And I think the biggest thing is I, I had a pretty good grasp. I hate to use this term, but just kind of a grasp on reality. You know, it's, it's sports are great and I want to maximize my potential. I want to help maximize my players' potential. But life is life. There's a lot of stuff out there. And if you are fear-based, whether it's fear of failure or fear, fear of success, you're going to struggle. 
And, and so I tried to minimize um, the pressure by understanding there's tons of opportunities. And if you work hard and you work smart, um, there's going to be lots of opportunities to come regardless of what happens on that day. Right, Paul. And I'm actually just curious, obviously, it sounds like your parents had a great impact you uh, on you. Um, maybe what's one one thing that sticks in your head that either of your parents uh, told you that you kind of take, take forward with you as you uh, well, I, go forth? Yeah, I had a good balance. My mom was pretty emotional and pretty driven. And she was the one that pushed my career really hard when I was younger. And I went to Boletaries for four years in my development. And my dad was the more kind of I would say stoic and kind of pragmatic personality. So I got the balance of the passion and the energy from my mom. And I probably got a little bit more of the expansive kind of retroactively um, evaluating things on an even keel from my dad. So I got a little bit of both um, and that helped a lot. And also my brother who coached me, is five years older, he was very even keeled and he was really smart about how he went through things. So I never felt an inordinate amount of pressure. He helped me kind of release, uh, release that pressure, pressure. And when I felt pressure it was mostly from myself, I, I basically did it myself. I put it on myself. So that made, that made it difficult. So I think it was a combination of those three people, my dad, my mom, and my brother that really helped give me a nice balance. That's wonderful, Paul. And so um, obviously, you know, it's, it's really important to start the day off right. And, you know, you were uh, a world-class athlete and now world-class coach. And so I'm, I'm curious about if you had any particular uh, sort of morning routine uh, that kind of helped you, you know, start the day off strong. Yeah, I, I'm actually a morning person. I have been for a long time. So I actually like to start the morning and I have historically kind of by myself, you know, just to, uh, I start the morning, whether it's with it's like a healthy breakfast or uh, a workout, or and I've done that for years. And, and a lot of that came from my college coach, Mike DePalmer Sr., because he liked to do morning workouts. And I felt like I did my most kind of impactful uh, self-evaluation and also kind of thinking in the morning, kind of before lunch. I seem to be most uh, kind of tuned in. And so because of that, my morning routine has been pretty similar the last kind of 20, 30 years, which is wake up, exercise, take a moment, go through my to-do list, and then just think about things that I wanted to try to accomplish um, on that day, both uh, kind of micro and also macro. Um, and so I try to make sure that I build on that stuff, which is, I think, good for me, because it created good habits, it created habits that helped me know myself better. Some people aren't very good morning people, so they prefer, you know, and I don't think you can necessarily change everything about that kind of person that you are. So you have to figure out when you do your most impactful thinking and working and, and kind of structure and prioritize your day so you can maximize those moments. But mine, I'm pretty clear about and I seem to stick, I've stuck with it for a pretty long time. Good stuff, Paul. And so I think it was Roger that, uh, you know, had a great, uh, gave a great review on your book and he mentioned uh, how you both would uh, set goals. And I was just wondering, you know, how your approach to setting goals with Roger, you know, how you went about that, you know, was that at the beginning of the year or, and also, you know, how big were the goals that you all would set as well? Well, when we started together in 2010, you know, we had long-term goals 
and the long-term goals were really just a couple different things. At that point, it was to win another major. Um, and it was to try to get back to number one. That was in 2010. And then that, that you, you talk about those, I mean, those are discussed. We discussed that in our initial meeting, just about like, what do you want to do? Um, you've done so much in your career already. What motive, you know, we had meetings and spend a bunch of time together, just getting to know each other. So I could understand his methodology. And then I could kind of plug it into tennis works to try to achieve those things. Um, so those were the long-term goals that we talked about. And then it was about me understanding his process and giving suggestions about what we can and can't or should and shouldn't do to try to make sure that he maximizes his skills. Um, and that process was really the micro reflection of what are we sticking with it? Are we making sure we stayed on track? And ultimately when you're with great players or great athletes or anyone of excellence, if they stay on track, and they keep being diligent about what their process is, the results are going to come. And that's what I talk about a lot in the book is that I think a lot of people get so discouraged or they get insecure or create doubt um, that they don't give themselves a chance to maximize whatever it is they're trying to achieve. And I think that's one of the big differences between, you know, great and good in anything. And I think great um, gives themselves a chance and they adjust and adapt to both success and failure in a way that allows them to maximize the opportunities so that they can kind of reach their goals. Right, Paul. And so obviously um, Roger has talked about us having a unique ability to, you know, both brush off like any, any tough um, losses, let's say, and think ahead to the future. What do you think makes him be able to to do that because I mean there's a lot of people who will dwell on uh, what has happened and and have that ruin their future prospects so how does he deal with that so well well a couple things one is he's won so much that <laughs> I think that helps uh, I think I actually do think it helps but also I think the painful losses especially when he was younger he realized that um, again I, I I'm a big believer that his life's perspective allows him so many benefits that most of us don't understand. And what I mean by that is that he genuinely really loves his life and, and realizes that if he doesn't win another match, his legacy is kind of fine and his life is fine. And he loves his kids. He loves his family. He loves to live his life. So that, that, that perspective allows him a freedom to compete without the fear of the what ifs. You know, like, what if this happens? What if that? Because he doesn't go there because he just allows him, you know, he has that liberty to go out there and kind of unconditionally compete without worrying about perceived consequences of what might happen. And that's where most of us mere mortals go wrong. We get wrapped up into that world of perceived consequences of what might happen. And that's our, a major reason for our downfall or shortcomings. That's a wonderful point, Paul. And so when you step back and kind of evaluate Roger's career, uh, you know, from that perspective, I guess his whole career, um, what things, it could either be technical, tactical, mental, uh, what things did he kind of change through his, his whole career, his involvement rather, uh, that really helped him the most uh, in becoming the great player that he is today? Well, he's pretty interesting if you think about it, because he kind of became great at the end of the Sampras Agassi era. 
you know, that's kind of 2004, Andre was wrapping down. Pete, Pete really was finished. So it was more the end of the Andre era. And that's where he started being great. And so at that point, he had dealt with power and serving volleyers. And then it started to become a different game. But for the next kind of three years after that, he really dominated. And then he had to start to deal with that lefty from Spain. You know, then he had to start to deal with the great Rafael Nadal, which has been a struggle for him because Rafael Nadal, it's a really tough style matchup. Um, and, it, you know, it was very difficult and is very difficult to beat him. I still think one of the hardest, I think the hardest thing in tennis is beating Rafael Nadal three out of five sets. The hardest thing is beating him three out of five sets on clay, but the hardest thing, uh, second hardest thing might be beating him three out of five sets. And, and Roger had to wrestle with that. Then he had to wrestle with Novak and Andy. And now at 36, he's number one in the world again. He's won three of the last five majors. How do you, I mean, it's hard to really comprehend that journey to me. And I've seen a lot of it up close and personal, but I really believe so much of it is um, driven by his emotional disposition. Um, you can't ever set, you know, you can't ever say enough about the physical athlete that he is and his ability to do things at an extremely high level very economically and very efficiently. That's another reason why his body has lasted is because he does things. It looks like he's floating most. I mean, he's working his backside off, but it just doesn't look so labor intensive. He's had a great trainer in Pierre Paganini since he's been 17 years old. Um, so he's done all of the things the right way. And because of that, his abilities are still at this ridiculously high level. All right, some awesome stuff by Paul Anacone, such a nice guy. I mentioned this on a previous episode with Paul. Uh, and by the way, this interview is actually uh, episode 83 of the Tennis Files podcast. But I previously mentioned that I saw Paul at the City Open Credentials tent last year. And when I saw him, I thought in my mind, oh, there's no way he's going to recognize me because by that point we had only done one live stream over the computer for about 40 minutes or so but Paul immediately looked at me and said hey Mirabon and I was definitely uh, very pleased but a little bit surprised I guess maybe it was just a negative expectation I don't know but it was fantastic to say hi to Paul and uh, really one of the nicest guys he actually has trained my friend Othman Garma, who has coached a lot of great players, including my friend Trent Huey, and then Sloan Stevens, and then now I believe he's with Monica Puig. And so, yeah, Paul's great. And some some big lessons that Paul mentioned are, first, there's a big difference between working hard and working smart. And this is very much illuminated when you see a lot of players just go out there and either mindlessly practice or, you know, one specific example is you go out there knowing that you have technical issues with your serve or maybe you don't, I don't know. And then you just go serve and you just are reinforcing bad habits continuously. So even though you're working really hard and it will still help, um, it's not the best way to spend your time. So you have to really assess your game and then try to work on things that you need to improve, but also maximize your strengths as well, which is one big thing that Paul mentioned. And so you need to have a great balance of 
maximizing your strengths and working on those while working on weaknesses as well. Because if you work on your weaknesses exclusively, then your strengths might fall off. I remember at one point I worked so hard on my backhand that when I tried to hit some forehands, I didn't have quite the oomph that I had and the rhythm. And so that's kind of a small example of what Paul is talking about. One other huge thing, even though we just had Dr. Mark Kovacs talk about strength and conditioning and uh, fitness elements, Paul mentioned something for that realm that's very important, which is that too much aerobic activity can take away from your tennis-specific speed and power, which is what he experienced. So if you think that you can get super fit by running 10 miles a day and that that's going to specifically translate to better performance on the court, that is incorrect because, first of all, 70% or so of your movement on the court is lateral, so you struck out right there and then also if you think about it you're performing uh, some very explosive movements on the court where by just running you're not doing that so you need to train specifically with regard to your movements on the court Uh, some other big points from Paul are that you can't fear failure or you can't fear success sometimes people fear one or the other and that's very destructive And one of my personal favorites is that morning routines can be extremely helpful. It's a great time for self-reflection. It's a great time for exercise and for performing very impactful work, especially if you tend to produce great work in the morning, then do it. (laughs) Also, um, it was really cool to hear about Roger's rise to the top as well. So a lot of great points by Paul. Really appreciate him coming on to speak with me multiple times. Uh, Really an honor. And sometimes I still can't believe that I get to speak with people as great as Paul. But uh, great stuff there. So the next clip that I want to play for you, actually a couple clips here, is from my interview with Jeff Salzenstein, a former top 100 player a great contributor to the Tennis Files podcast as well as my tennis summits. And these clips are taken from episode 74 of the podcast. So I hope you enjoy them. Here they are. To that point, uh, you know, again, grew up in Denver, uh, was a national champion at 12. Another quick story. By 15, I had dropped to 69 in the country. I was five foot four, a hundred and nothing pounds. And I was getting overpowered. I was playing other sports and I dropped from number one in the country to 69 in the country. And that's really tough for a teenager where your identity is totally attached to tennis. And so that was a huge challenging point where a lot of players, a lot of junior tennis players might quit. I I recommitted myself and got back to top five in the country, ended up going to Stanford on a half scholarship, was slated to play five singles or actually played five singles my freshman year. And then I developed this massive serve between my freshman and sophomore year, and I catapulted to the top of the lineup. And that's when I actually started thinking about playing pro tennis. So playing pro tennis was a surprise for me. I actually, my dream was to go to Stanford. That was my goal. Then once I got there and I started improving, then I set the new goal and the new dream of playing pro tennis. But I certainly never woke up dreaming of winning Grand Slams. And maybe that's one reason I didn't win Grand Slams or didn't come closer to winning Grand Slams is because, again, my my set point was was at a certain level. And 
probably could have been higher. That's great stuff, Jeff. Really appreciate that. And so, I mean, looking back at the Chang match, which, I mean, winning a set off him was amazing. And I'm sure a lot of players would have thought of the great accomplishment and, and also maybe had a letdown, if you will, I guess. But well, I mean, what are a couple of things you would have done differently, both leading up to the match and during the match that you think would have made a difference? There's a couple of things. And if we shift over to the fitness side of things, I was having some cramping issues leading up to that match. So I had played Thomas Mooster that summer. And I was up a set and a break. He was number two in the world before Chang became two like a month later. And I started cramping in the third set. I had had other cramping issues. So I think going into that match, knowing I was playing three out of five, I had uncertainty of whether I was going to cramp or not or whether I was going to be fit enough. So irrespective of the mental part, I think they, they go hand in hand when you're a pro athlete. You've got to have the fitness dialed in. And I probably didn't have that 100% confidence that I could do it. And I probably let my mind wonder about that too much. Just like I wondered, am I going to embarrass myself tonight? So certainly changing my mindset or my approach to, hey, I'm going to do the best I can. And if I win that first set, I'm not stopping. You know, I'm going to go, I'm going to be relentless, absolutely relentless from the first point to the end. And if I cramp, I cramp. So I think a stronger resolve and a stronger thought process around how I was going to handle adversity. So, you know, when I was playing that match, I remember I had my coach with me there and I don't know if I expressed to him that I was wondering about being embarrassed. I probably kept it inside. I think being able to have that conversation with, with an expert, with a mentor, someone who could help me reframe that, that thought around embarrassment and actually shift that into a new thought or a new mantra or a new trigger. Every time I have that thought or every time I get complacent or get content <clears throat> that maybe it's maybe it's a, a would have been a mantra or a trigger like stay hungry or fight till the end. So having those little mantras in the moment, I think would have helped me a lot. Yeah, I mean, this story is, well, both stories are extremely helpful because, I mean, I know there are a ton of us out there and I've had the same experience where I played maybe a number one seed in a tournament. I knew people are watching and I I'd had this, the same exact thought, which is, you know, I hope I don't lose 6060. And then when you win a game, then you kind of relax, even though there's way more potential to to win there. So I'm very thankful for that that uh, story there and, and those tips. Um, but as far as the mindset performance. What, you know, I feel like a lot of people don't work on this enough. And I mean, you mentioned this earlier too. So can you kind of tell the audience why a person's mindset is so crucial to their performance and success, uh, both on the court and in life? Right. Yeah. Your Well, your inner world or your outer world, I should say, is reflected by your inner world. So basically how you feel about yourself it will show up in, in the real world in some way, shape or form. And I know that for some that could sound a little woo woo or hokey pokey, but literally you could just look at your world around you, who you hang out with, how much money you make, where you live, uh, you know, the choices that you make. It's all it all comes back to how you're feeling about yourself, what you're thinking and then the actions that you're taking. And so the, the reality, Maribon, is that by the time you're 35 years old, you're 98% of what you're doing is running a program. The brain has just laid down these train tracks, these, these synapses are firing all day long, and you're running a program. So it's just one reason why it can be challenging to, to stop a bad habit, because you're just running that program day in and day out. If you wake up a certain way, if you wake up happier, you wake up sad, or you, uh, you know, are resistant to exercise and you don't exercise, starting a new exercise program, changing the diet, whatever it is, 
we're all running this program. So the sooner you realize that most of what's happening is happening underneath the surface, that it's actually the inner game, the invisible game that can help you make these changes, that's when you can start doing the work. And this is really, again, it's, it's a little bit woo-woo, right? But there's hard science behind it. And this is a softer, this is a softer approach. It's not like, all right, you know, if you improve your technique on your forehand, uh, you're going to be able to, you know, win more matches. Well, that's true. And that's really tangible. Like we can go out on the court and videotape your forehand. We can see that and we can make the changes and we can watch the changes. And that's tangible. People can see that. But it's the unseen stuff, the, the invisible game, the in between the ears. That's where the magic. That's where all the magic is. is and the sooner someone realizes that it's actually the, the mindset and the inner game that sets the tone that creates the foundation for your life and your tennis and whatever you decide to do. That's, that's when the magic can start to happen. That's when you start to become aware of it all. And, uh, you know, more and more people are turning on to it and getting it. And it's exciting because any challenge that you're having in your life, it could be a skill set that you don't possess, but there's a good chance that skill set is linked to a belief system, a self-limiting belief. Anything stopping you in your life, you can trace it to a belief system, to a thought and to the words that you're using. And then start just paying attention again. Listen to what people say. I mean, I've been doing this for years and you learn very quickly how they see the world, how what they believe. And uh, you'll you'll learn what their belief systems. If they say, you know, I can't do that. I could never do that. You'll learn very quickly. You know, I can't hit serves in the clutch. You know, I could never be an entrepreneur. You're, you're going to learn very quickly what someone believes in just by listening to them speak. Yeah, great points there, Jeff. And uh, I mean, where do you think these negative patterns come from? Because I mean, you have some people who just by nature, they have all these negative thoughts, self-limiting beliefs. And then on the other hand, you have other people who take the opposite route who have, you know, huge belief in themselves. So, I mean, where, where do these come from? Yeah, well, they come from different places. Number one, they come from your, uh, your conditioning. So, you know, coming out of the womb and maybe even before, like if your, your mother, you know, you're pregnant, your mother's pregnant, you're, you're in the womb. If she's not happy, if she's not, if she's speaking negatively, that can impact you. You come out of the womb and now you're in this big world and maybe your parents are fighting in front of you or they're telling you, you can't do this, or they're saying they can't do something. So you start by the time you're two years old, you're seeing the world in, in the way that you've been brought into the world, the way that you've been conditioned. Uh, you know, Serena Williams and Venus Williams, you know, from a very young age, what did their dad tell them? You're, you're going to be champions. You're going to be Grand Slam champions. You're going to be the best. Like he was constantly infusing uh, that belief system from a young age. So the, early, the earlier you can uh, get that program positive with, with parents, um, and that's why it's so important for parents to understand this when they're working with their children. There are so many tennis parents out there and other parents of kids that play sports or in music that are so darn hard on their kids. And not only is it impacting their performance, but it's impact, impacting their psyche and their mindset. And it's, I mean, there are things that parents say to kids that you would never say to your worst enemy. And so that is a skill that parents probably need more than kids uh, to, you know, to work on that. But it starts very young with the parents. And then, of course, you could have super positive parents 
what if you go to school and you have a teacher, a coach, a basketball coach that's hard on you? It tells you you can't do something. You're not fast enough. One of my mentors talks about this. He, he, was, he thought he was really fast and he moved to a new area and he had this new coach. And I, think, uh, I think it was in football. And, he's, and the coach said, you're slow. So then the kid started believing he was slow and he couldn't do anything. And then he moved to a new place and the coach said, wait, you're fast. And then he became fast again. So, you know, it's a pretty stark example. But, you know, if you have a coach that's negative or if you have a peer group, what if you have peers when you're a teenager that say you're ugly, you know, that say that you're fat and that you're not good enough and you're not smart and you get bullied? That can dramatically impact you. So you could have the best parents in the world, but something can trigger you in the, in the environment, in the outside world. And then what about TV? You know, what about the Internet? All the negative messages that are being that we're being bombarded with on a daily basis. So you really this is one reason to have a coach, right? A mindset coach that understands this is that you really want to create uh, the skill set to not be influenced by your outside world as much as people are. People are so influenced by the outside instead of really knowing who they are and really uh, having those mantras. Again, if you go back to my story was whatever you do, don't embarrass yourself. What if my mantra was stay hungry, fight to the death? You know, you, you, you listen to Rafa Nadal and he says, he says he embraces suffering. Well, someone else might be suffering and say, I can't push any longer. I'm done. Well, he says, I love this. I love the suffering. Let's, let's, let's embrace this. So really having the skills. And again, most parents, most business owners aren't aware of these how important this is. And so then their employees or their children uh, get impacted by their poor communication skills. And that's a huge, I mean, communication and the words we use and, and the body language that we have makes a huge impact on, on those around us. So if you're, if you're a young person coming into the world and you have negative stuff around you, you've got to surround yourself with positivity. You've got you to listen to positive podcasts, uplifting podcasts. You listen to uplifting music. I'm, my brother who had the addiction issue, who, by the way, is doing amazing after a very, very tough I mean, he, he had the addiction issues. He ended up going to prison and he completely rehabilitated himself in prison. Uh, he called me one day halfway through. He was, he was serving four years for a felony and it was dark. I mean, it was a dark time for him. And he called me one day and he said, I want to change. I'm ready to change. I don't know how to do it. And I sent him a book. And after he read that book, he was like calling me every week. And we were having all these talks about mindset and entrepreneurship. And that's one of the most famous or not famous, but most inspirational stories uh, that I have around uh, around the work that I've done or that I've been associated with to see my brother go from who the drug addict, the, the guy using drugs, the, the hood, the hoodlum type to this very inspirational now life coach. He's actually a life coach. We've went to a retreat together last month, but he did it because he started changing his thoughts, his words, his value system. Uh, and he started modeling successful people. So reading positive things, podcasts, um, surrounding yourself with amazing people. You are, you, you are the five people. You are going to be the five people that you hang around with the most. So if you're married and you have a negative Nelly wife or husband, it's really hard to stay positive. You've got to be aligned with your partner in, in how you see the world. And obviously, you can have differences, but that positive outlook is so important. If you have a business partner, it's really negative. If you have employees that are really negative, it will drop the morale of your, of your company. We all know Jeff as a fantastic 
tennis instructor. He's so good on technique. And it's really fantastic now to see him really focus in on the mental game. And so in episode 74 of the Tennis Files podcast, Jeff definitely dropped some huge knowledge bombs. And some great points from Jeff are really to be relentless from the first point to the last. Because you heard how Jeff, when he played Michael Chang, uh, obviously one of the best in the game, it can be nerve-wracking, of course, and his, his real goal was just not to be embarrassed. But instead, he wished that he had simply stuck to his game plan and stayed focused and you know, not thought about the results and, and not being embarrassed. Because if he had stuck to his game plan and kept playing relentlessly like he did in the first set who knows he might have beaten Michael Chang or certainly made it a a tougher match so that's a big lesson to learn whenever you're playing somebody stick to your game plan and try to execute to the best of your ability and try to not think about extraneous factors and other emotional things like that so some other great lessons from the clips with my interview with Jeff here are it's really the inner game that helps you make changes. It all starts in the mind and self-limiting beliefs are very destructive. So it's really bad to tell yourself that, oh, I can never do X. I can never hit a great serve. I can never hit a great forehand because you're done. You will definitely never hit that great shot that you really are capable of doing, especially if you can just change your belief system and your mindset. So it is just so powerful when you see people talk negative about themselves. It's usually a self-fulfilling prophecy. So don't do that. (laughs) And one other really cool thing that has happened recently is that Jeff has been such a great influence to his brother, Eric, that Eric had recently or has recently won a big speaking competition that awarded him a TED Talk. So that is pretty amazing. And just kudos to the Salzenstein family for some really great performances and uh, just just really love talking to Jeff and hearing about his thoughts. I recently saw him at a Racket Fit seminar in New Jersey and it was really great to talk shop with him. And so if you enjoyed this episode or the, the clips from this episode, you really want to go to tennisfiles.com slash 74 and hear more about my conversation with Jeff, specifically on mindset and the mental game. It's really a powerful episode. So next up for you is my good friend, Will Hamilton from Fuzzy Yellow Balls. He has one of the, first off, best names in the business, Fuzzy Yellow Balls. It's a great one. I won't talk further about why that's a great name. But anyways, Will has created one of the biggest and most well-known, most most reputable online instructional tennis sites in the world. He has worked with some incredible people on content and courses like Martina Navratilova, Pat Rafter, the Brian Bros. I mean, that's incredible. And just a couple of people that he's worked with. But you're going to hear some great nuggets from what Will has learned from working with these great players. And so I think you'll really enjoy it. And without further ado, 
Here it is. I'll talk about the the unconventional ones. Um, one of them is when uh, they're one up, one back, and they're typically returning. So the baseline guy that the returner can't get to the net. Uh, they, because they're forehands in the middle, but if you're right-handed in the ad court, you can do this too. After the return, Mike will shift over. So he's hitting mostly forehands, but he will only either hit basically the forehand down the line or through the middle, never hard cross court mm. because he's trying to get the ball low on the net guy, get the net guy to pop up the volley so Bob can cross and put that ball away. So basically Mike's trying to hit a shot that sets Bob up to poach gotcha. on the next ball. And and you can obviously, everybody watching can do that at their level, even if you're playing with another righty, so that'd be a backhand volley for uh, for your net partner. But the reason they don't go hard cross court is because that exposes uh, Bob at the net now, because now the volley or, or the baseline guy could go down Bob's line. So it opens up the angles. Mm-hmm. So basically by only going line, when Mike only goes line or middle, it shuts off the angle for the volley or to either go at Bob or come back to Mike. Gotcha. Great. So, so without a, yeah, without a visual that might be, hopefully that came across. The other one is they have this thing called the bounce overhead guy, where if they get a lob uh, that they let bounce, um, Mike will take it. Bob will shade off of the court. So he basically runs into a, into because it runs into a doubles alley. Mike hits it and Bob runs into the middle of the court. He's right at the net and he tries to spike any ball that's back through. Hmm. So the reason they do it is because how many times have you overcooked an overhead? You know, you get an overhead, you're like, I got to end the point on this guy. So to take all the pressure off of overhitting an overhead, Mike will basically hit a good overhead, probably through the middle to cut off angles. And then Bob will run in and try and pick off any ground stroke hard to create a, a good angle off of. If you're hitting a ground stroke, it's hard to angle that ball. So Bob will probably pick it off. And if there's another lob, then they just rinse, repeat the play. Mike's back already. So he can take another bounce overhead. Wow. So it's, it's a, it's a strategic way to, to uh, uh, maintain control when somebody's lobbing you. Um, but they're hitting decent enough lobs where you can't put the overhead away. Yeah, I love that play. It's brilliant, man. I mean, yeah, that, that I good. think, yeah, I mean, I think we should all like tell our partners, it's like, Hey man, you know, I've, I've got you covered, you know, you, you don't have to feel pressure to yeah. hit a huge overhead and, um, you know, do that to shade play too. So that's awesome. Um, and, and that to go back to what I was saying before is one of those things that Bob and Mike sort of just figured out through trial and error and experimentation because they allowed each other to make mistakes and test stuff out. I feel like that's a, a an uncommon play, right? Yeah, yeah, no, totally, exactly. Um, but obviously, you know, if you have time with your partner, definitely, you know, try those out. Um, and also, too, just curious, you know, obviously, maybe this is like not as common, you know, for people out there, but I, I'm curious, you know, like. For the lefty-righty combo, have you kind of gleaned any particular, like, uh, strategies or tips, like, if we have, like, that sort of combination? Man, I mean, you know, it, it, it really varies. Like, uh, Bob and Mike, like, forehands in the middle. I like that, too, because I think it really is an advantage when you, the net player always has their favorite volley. Mm. Uh, and, like, when you don't have that, then who has the backhand volley in the middle, right? Whoever plays – if it's two righties, then whoever's playing deuce has a backhand volley in the middle. So like another person we work with, Gigi Fernandez, says when you're picking sides, whoever plays deuce, one of the main considerations is, does that person have the better backhand volley when they're at the net? Because the ball's going to be coming through the middle, right? So that's how Gigi looks at it. But then Martina Navratilova was a lefty, and she wanted to play the ad court, right? So it was the opposite of what Bob and Mike do. Mm. And, you know, Martina's whole thing was, this is convenient for Bob and Mike, Martina's whole thing is the best returner should be in the ad court uh, because, you know, obviously if the break points over there, you're more likely to win it. But if it's a, uh, if it's add in, then the, the serving team's less likely to get out of the game 
on, you know, if they're serving to the better returner and ad. And for the Bryans, it's convenient because Mike's the better returner. So they have the lefties in the middle or they have the forehands in the middle and then the righty in the ad court, who's the Mike, the better returner. So they kind of get the both the best of both worlds. Pat Rafter, I mean, that's a hell of a name to get to. I mean, I, I saw, you know, some of the stuff you did with him and uh, just is great stuff. And I want to ask you, you know, obviously his serve is so nasty. And I, yeah. you know, w- what makes Pat's serve um, so difficult to deal with, in your opinion? Um, well, funny, uh, uh, so the thing bounces in a different direction every single time. That's that's the weirdest thing. And I wish I could give you like what he was doing. I mean, he kind of he would use the clock analogy where it's like, you know, I'm trying to go 11 to five kind of wrap around the ball is how it should feel when you're doing it. That's sort of how he visualized his swing. Uh, But it was funny. We were shooting. He was like, yeah, man, like I toss it up there a lot of times. I don't really know where the toss is exactly going to go. It'll sort of be up there, but sometimes it's a little off and I'll just hit it. And so and he was like, look. You know, I don't really know where the toss is going to be. I don't know exactly how it's going to spin, but the good news is neither does my opponent. Uh, and I can't tell you, like, all the people who went through Pat's program, that's the number one thing people come back and say to me that they loved about the course. They're like, it was so relatable. Like, he's just like, he can't control his toss. I know exactly how that feels. Uh, so, I mean, Pat's a great dude, um, but he is, I mean, what you would expect just having watched, if you've ever watched him on television, just totally laid back, totally cool. He's the exact same in person as, as you know, he was on television. So he's, he's a great guy. Awesome stuff. And, and just uh, some insight for the audience, like the course that you all filmed, like, was that more of a technical course on like how to hit like how to effective- serve, basically? Yeah. yeah. Cool. We covered nice. stuff like, you know, his volleys, because uh, his volley technique was interesting. Like the, the technique, the, the thing he said that I've always remembered that helped me a ton, helped a lot of other people is he had this line like that was like hit the volley, like hit and feel. So what does that mean? He's basically like hit your volley and then kind of give it a little English, like literally kind of, you know, almost guide the follow through in the direction mm. that you want the ball to go. So yeah, exactly. So you almost end up with your hand, like you're holding a tray, mm. like, you know, and you just hit the ball, I give it a little English in the direction you wanted it to go. And I thought that was a weird tip, but then I tried it. And I was like, well, it actually kind of works. And I think I think the reason is, is because it stops you from breaking your wrist. Like a lot of people hack down and break the wrist. And so when you do that and kind of give it some English, you actually have a firm wrist. Mm. That's my, you know, trying to figure out what's actually happening after you hit. But I think tips like that, you pick up a ton of them working with these guys and gals where it's just sort of like a little random line that kind of you do it and your, your technique falls into place without you overthinking it. Yeah. Which yeah. is the most important thing. Um, so that one I always remember just sort of hit and feel basically awesome. hit a little English in the direction you want the ball to go. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, that definitely makes a lot of sense with it not breaking the wrist and, uh, yeah, that's, that's yeah. interesting. That's not what Pat said. Pat wasn't like it prevents you from breaking the wrist. He's just like, this is what I do. Yeah. And then I'm like, well, I think that, okay, I guess you're not breaking the wrist anymore. Cause everybody's like, you know, it's like the karate job. Yeah, that's right. Um, good stuff, man. I appreciate it. It's a really cool tip there. And, and also I want to ask you too, like maybe one technical tip on the serve, because obviously it was a huge stroke. Swing as hard as there. possible. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's actually, that's an important tip because, you know, a lot of people like slow it down on the second serve, but I mean, he's like swinging his, you know, really hard on the, uh, with his second. So he could produce all that ridiculous spin. Yeah. Well, I was actually joking, but good. Uh, <laughs> yes, you should pretty much swing as hard as possible. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Good stuff. And um, let's see what else. That's my advice on the serve. Swing as hard as possible. Just hit it over the fence. Um, <laughs> <laughs> mine on the serve actually would be, uh, 
what serve can you hit that produces a return that comes back through the middle? Mm, that's a good. That would too. Be, that's that's how I tend to think about it. Yeah. Um, I uh, I got this. I, I you know I have this theory that at most levels of the game, aces lose you matches because you you hit a couple aces, but then how many serves first serve did you miss? And then your opponent gets to tee off on a second serve. So I think the most important thing that I've seen is just making the return extremely predictable and through the middle, so that. Most of the time, your next shot's a forehand. Or in doubles, if the return's predictable, then you set your partner up because your partner knows where the ball's going to go. Yeah, that's a great tip. And, uh, yeah, I mean, in general, like, I I noticed that, you know, like, there's certain games that, like, say in doubles where I, like, win my serve really easily. And I'm like, oh, what was the difference? And it was because I made, like, four first serves, you know. So it's like. And your partner posts on all of them probably. Yeah, exactly. That too. You hit a serve and that was it. Point was over. You know, you didn't have to hit a volley. Yeah. All right. Some great insights from. A lot of lessons that Will has learned from the legends in the game in the sport of tennis that we all love. And just a couple lessons from this one. I mean, I think you heard the intricacies of the plays there that Will described. But one of the lessons that's huge is to you really need to think about optimal double strategy, such as how you can cut off certain angles, how you can take pressure off your partner and put more pressure on your opponents. And the more you can think about these things, the more you will thrive in matches. And as you heard, the Bryan brothers in particular, they actually experimented and thought about these things and actually came up with their own unique plays, such as the uh, overhead where uh, essentially you're having one of the Bryan brothers not having to hit such a big overhead because you're having the other partner ready to pounce at a much weaker ball, even if the overhead isn't huge or anything like that. And so you can replicate something like that. You really just have to be looking for these types of opportunities. And another great lesson that I thought was neat was from Pat Rafter, where I see a lot of this with amateur players where they're breaking the wrist on the volley. So uh, it was interesting to hear Pat's specific technique uh, that that Will tried and that was successful for him. But I think the main lesson there is that you don't want to be breaking the wrist on your volley. So if you can, try to video yourself hitting volleys, hitting other strokes, and try to examine in particular some of the mo- more fundamental technical uh, critical components of, the, of your technique, like uh, breaking the wrist, which is a no-no for sure. So also... I found the point about hitting the serve that will make the return very predictable for you. Actually, a great insight. You don't necessarily have to go for huge serves, go for placement, and try to keep in mind, just like a chess player, your next move. So in order to set up your, you know, maybe uh, your killer move there, which is, um, you know, hitting a short ball into the open court, Try to figure out, okay, what serve do I need to hit that will produce this weak return? So that's a great way to think about it. Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. 
Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. All right. One more interview, not just one more, but the next interview uh, where that I want to bring to you all is my great interview with James Blake recently. And it was an honor to speak with James for the second time, which blows my mind as well. Such a great guy. I recently uh, was a tournament director for the Miami Open and uh, did a great job. And yes, the great James Blake, former number four in the world. And without further ado, here are some clips from that interview. Oh, and before I play those clips, just want to mention that Will's episode, uh, the clips from, from that podcast episode are at tennisfiles.com slash 91. So that is episode 91 of the podcast. And now here are James clips. Everybody's interested with routines and kind of what, what the, the best in the world do to prepare themselves before matches. So I was wondering if you have any maybe tips or, you know, some things that you did before matches that especially helped you to uh, really maximize your capabilities and performance during the matches. Yeah, I think a lot of people, whether they're kind of weekend warrior players, they don't recognize how much preparation does go into every match for the players. And um, I think I said something recently about playing two matches in a day is so brutal um, for when the guys in uh, Rome just had to do that. Um, and they're like, well, it's only five sets for some of them. And that's just like a one, you know, one match on at a Grand Slam. And it's really not because of all the preparation. So for me, um, I was starting to prepare probably three or four hours before a match started. So I was up eating, making sure I had the, the right routine of, of the breakfast or lunch, whatever the, the last meal before it is. But I'm usually on the court uh, about two and a half hours before I'm planning on starting. So get the warm up, get about a 30 minute warm up in of hitting. And even before that, you got to stretch, you got to warm up physically for that. You do that, then you cool down a little bit, you, you eat a little bit more. And I'd say the biggest thing for me um, that I could tell any any uh, you know weekend warrior player or any 4050 player is um, I'm not I don't say it exactly the same as some of the people would call it visualization but I would always go over with my coach about I don't know, 30 minutes prior to walking on the court I'd have uh, a sit down and go over exactly the game plan think about what I need to do to be successful think about what the opponent is most likely going to do and how they can adjust if I am being successful or how I may need to adjust if, if I'm not being successful um, and then just sit with that with whether it's with headphones in or whatever, but just sit you know on my own and think about the game plan and go over really in my head for a good five minutes, maybe ten minutes, um, just kind of picturing what can happen, what that can look like, and kind of all the scenarios that can happen one step on the court. And for me, that gave me a little bit of a calm and a and a, and a feeling of you know people ask me if I ever got nervous. I never got nervous because I felt like I was just prepared for any situation that was going to come. You know, there are days when you play you know your worst tennis, and if that's the worst thing that can happen, you got to be prepared for it because it's going to happen. If you play six seven. 100 matches on tour there's going to be a couple that aren't your best and there's going to be some that go out and you, you're click from beginning to end everything was working well and um, that you got to be prepared for as well and not panic it oh my goodness i'm beating someone that's really good top 10 in the world i'm beating them six two four two you know should i you know what what happened here and you just keep going with that so um for me that that sort of visualization um can help a lot of people if you're just prepared for every situation that's coming your way wow james that's an incredible advice i really appreciate that and i hope that you all are taking notes at least mentally notes but uh you know you, you mentioned about uh nervousness and that you you never really got nervous and that's incredible and i was wondering you know specifically 
you know, for these points where say uh, maybe it's it's a you're down a match point or up a match point, and it's like the semis or quarters or something of like the U.S. Open, for example. I mean, like, what how, can you kind of take us through, like, what you're doing, like, before the point in order to ensure that you don't let anything really affect you ex- extraneous factors, and so you can focus on the point. Yeah, my biggest uh, again, it comes down for me to those. My biggest thing is preparation. So if I'm at match point up or down, um, I think about what I do best. You know, you want to play your best point. You want to figure out what you do. For me, that was always trying to get forehands, doing as much as I can to be aggressive and get a forehand. But the other thing I thought about was I've done this thousands and thousands of times in practice. So this point is no different than that. I know I can execute every shot I'm trying to hit. Um, If I miss, I miss because, you know, just the same as in practice. If I do this 100 times in practice and I'm going to make it 85, that means 15 of them I am going to miss. So I have to be okay with that possibility. There's no shot in any sport that you can say you do 100% of the time because you're going to make mistakes you just have to maximize that those percentages uh for everyone that thought i played low percentage tennis i used to laugh about it and think because i try to do everything to maximize percentages and if that means hitting a low percentage shot when the high percentage shot gives me a greater percentage of losing the point i might make the shot but it gives them an opportunity to to be aggressive and they're going to win it higher i was always trying to maximize my percentages of what i'm going to do best uh to give me the best chance to win this match and to win numerous matches um so I, i always felt like okay i'm down match point i want to try to get a forehand how do i best do that is that serving it to their backhand to you know have them come back to my forehand or is it serving it to their forehand that's going to come to my forehand and um just thinking of ways to get forehands and then go for my shots if i get a forehand that i feel like i can go for go for it and don't be afraid just because of the moment that i i can't do that because i know and that's the, where the preparation comes in i know i've made these shots thousands of times in practice so go ahead and be aggressive and go for that shot that you know you've made so many times in practice and that actually took a lot of the the nervousness away because um i felt like if i do it right i can hold my head high when I'm done and say I did what I was supposed to do and this time I missed and if I keep doing it the right way I'm going to be in the the, the right position uh, plenty of times throughout my career. Love that James uh, just again you know super sage advice and and so as well you know James I think we all get really inspired by stories of how great players and any players really uh, perhaps they go through a losing streak and then they're able to uh, rise above it and, and and get through it so I was wondering if you could maybe speak to a time in your career maybe where you did go through a tough patch as far as uh, results and, and, and things like that, and, and then how you're able to uh, push past it and then uh, and do well once again. Yeah, I think um, when I was coming back from injury in 2005, um, didn't really know what to expect. Um, I didn't know how my body was going to react. I'd been sick um, for about six, seven, eight months. Um, and so coming back, I, uh, I struggled a little and I lost. Uh, I remember losing a tough match in a Queens club to Groshan where I had match points um, and then losing at Wimbledon. I guess who I lost to, but I lost the, I remember losing first round there and uh, coming back. So now it's starting the hard court summer. And uh, that's usually when I did my best and still kind of struggling a little bit. Um, and then it took kind of one or two matches where uh, I remember I felt like I was doing things the right way and still losing um, to tell me, okay, well, I know I'm close. I know these things are going to come. I'm still doing things the right way. And if they never come, this is where it helped to have a little bit more of the perspective of, of life of like, even if it doesn't come, I know I'm enjoying the process 
process again. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm doing things the right way. And if it doesn't come right now, you know, hopefully at some point it will. And if I don't win a lot more matches, if I just, you know, this is sort of my level now where I haven't been able to succeed and break through to even like a second or third round or a quarterfinals of a, of a tour event, then that's where it is. And I have to be okay with it um, because there's, you know, there's nothing else you can do. You can't be, you know, anything else I always felt like was being greedy because I'm just doing the best I can. So I felt like the process was back now. I was doing things the right way at that point. And before I knew it, then I kind of, um, I kind of, it's it kind of steamrolled. So I got, I made the finals of DC, uh, lost to Andy Roddick in the finals there. And that was sort of the, the jump back into into feeling good. And then I, I was uh, in Cincinnati and thought, okay, now I can do well again. Of course, I happened to draw Roger Federer first round because I wasn't seated anymore. And that didn't go so well, although I played, I, I played well. Uh, I just um, lost to him and he was, you know, he, he showed me, always seemed to find a way to show me that there's another gear that he had. Um, but then I went to, um, uh, to New Haven and ended up winning that event and then making the quarters of the US Open and things sort of uh, just kept going in the right direction after I had been really struggling um, earlier in that year. And it was a matter of my coach being with me and, and keeping my confidence high and believing that the process was still sound. I was doing things the right way. I just, you know, maybe wasn't quite all the way back with my um, with my abilities from being sick the year before. And um, I had to be okay with that. And then once things got going the right way, the confidence came back. And when the confidence comes back, you can really get rolling on tour. Some fantastic lessons here from the great James Blake. And you can check out the entire episode that these clips are pulled from at tennisfiles.com slash 96. So that's episode 96 of the Tennis Files podcast. And what I want to highlight here are they really preparation is everything. You can't just go out there without thinking about how you can play to your strengths in the match and how you can exploit your opponent's weaknesses. And you've got to, for example do your dynamic warm-ups, and uh, just do everything that you can to make sure that you put out the best effort and best performance possible because why wouldn't you want to do that? Otherwise, that's really a waste of your capabilities and your talents. And clearly from the interview, you can tell that James put an extremely high priority in preparation, and that's why he got to top five, top four in the world. So that's an incredible achievement that is a testament to preparation. Also, in the crunch time, one thing that you can always fall back on, well, always, if you train hard and train smart, is that you can really remember to trust in your training that you have made the shots that you're trying to set up to hit so many times before in practice, and that as long as you do things the right way, and trust in the process, especially when times are tough. You know, let's say you're going through a big losing streak, just like what James went through and what so many players, every single player goes through. You need to just remember that you need to keep doing the right things, trust the process, and the results will eventually come. So some fantastic lessons from James, which I really, really do appreciate. And now I want to turn to... A fantastic interview, well, clips from my interview with Peter Freeman, a great friend of Tennis Files. We talk a lot about tennis and we message on Facebook Messenger mostly and talk quite a bit. And 
Peter Freeman is the founder of Crunch Time Coaching. Highly encourage you to check out all of his material and his YouTube channel and so forth. And I hope you really do enjoy the content that I brought out for you. Thanks to Pete. And without further ado, here it is. A question for you. Um, the first question regarding, like, I guess, tips for students, because you do such a great job um, teaching players like technique and strategy and whatnot. I want to start with the serve. And so, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you see tennis players make when they hit this complicated stroke that we call the serve? Oh man, you know that's the thing that is so tough. Is the serve is it's it's so interesting, like. The serve, when you're doing it right, it just feels like one fluid motion. But if you've never really done it, you know, and you're new to the game, there's so many moving parts. You know, it, it's it's hard. Like I really feel for my students, and I think the biggest mistake that I see people make is the refusal to break it down into bite-sized chunks to 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 try and create the whole orchestra at once because it is just so complex a movement if, if it doesn't come natural to you, especially the continental grip. I mean, no one in their right mind, if they haven't had a lesson, is going to pick up the racket and start serving with a continental grip. It, it makes no sense. The frame is actually facing the ball to where you'd hit everything off the frame unless you make your pronation move at the exact right moment. And so... Um, you know, that's, that's another thing. Most people who pick up a racket and they're self-taught, they've then got to go through the growing pains of switching from a, from a, you know, a hammer grip or how frying pan grip, semi-Western grip, however you want to describe it to a continental grip, which is like complete opposite. So I think for the people who really want to learn the right way, you know, it, it's kind of like reverse engineering the process is what you have to get used to. You know, rather than starting with both hands together and the traditional down together, up together hit, you should start more towards the contact point and just get used to seeing your racket go from on edge to 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 pronating to the ball until that really starts to feel natural. And also, you know, since you're doing that, you're not going to be able to stand back at the baseline and do it. You should you should be right next to the net. I really believe almost everybody trying to learn the the entire serve should should reverse engineer it, start in bite sized chunks, start from the end rather than the beginning, and be close to the net, get successful, and gradually work their way back to the baseline. Where everybody just wants to go, well, my serve stinks, so I'm just going to go out there and hit tons of balls from the baseline with buckets, and you're just reinforcing your your, your bad habit you've already developed. Totally. Thanks so much for those tips, Pete. Yeah, totally true. I mean, wh there's something about standing at that baseline where it just gets you to think about, like, pr program yourself how you always serve. And so to, like Pete said, to change the technique there, you got to kind of change the environment and go up to the net or face the back fence or something. Great uh, tips there, Pete. Really appreciate that. And so as far as where the power in the serve comes from, I mean, you see, you know, giant, people strong people uh you know they hit a serve and they can't go past like 40 miles per hour so where does the power in your opinion and from your experience come from for the serve that's a great question and i would love if we could like have like a, a battle royale uh, a debate on this with, <laughs> with with some 
some other people because, uh, you know, there's all this debate of, is it a throwing motion? Is it not a throwing motion? And there was one guy who even posted this on Facebook and, and uh, he's like, I can't really throw, but I can serve. And I do believe it's very much like a throwing motion. And, and I'm going to go into this uh, quite a bit here. Um, and if you can really learn how to throw, if you're a natural thrower, I think you're going to have a lot easier time on the serve. Uh, because I think just the, just the whipping action that you get in your arm when you're really trying to, you know, throw a ball far, like a long bomb down the field, you know, I, I feel very much feels like, like a serve. Uh, now I know you're, you're rotating differently with your body at slightly different times and, and how, you know, you look at a tennis player and they say more side on as they're hitting. But as far as the way the arm is, is feeling the feel of it and the, and the, and the power and the release feels very similar. And then another thing Rick Macy talked about, which, which might be the best tip I've heard in a while. That was a big aha moment to me. He's talking about the timing of the racket drop. And he was saying a lot of people lose a lot of power because they go into their racket drop before they use their legs to explode up to the ball. And by exploding up to the ball, it doesn't mean that you have to jump. I think when people hear like, use your legs and explode, they think you automatically have to jump. But he says, you know, tennis is one of those sports, and he explained it like a throwing motion, you know, one of the, one of the throwing motion sports with a serve to where most people tend to go into the racket drop before they really explode their legs. Whereas like, if you look at any other sport, they naturally, when they get ready to throw, they're using their legs to explode and to facilitate the throwing motion. So if you watch a quarterback get ready to throw a long bomb, he's, he's still using the kinetic chain. Just because he's not jumping into the throw, the legs are creating the force up into the arm. You, you'll, you'll see their legs are slightly bent, then they kind of sink down. Then as they get ready to really heave that thing, You'll start to see the legs extend and then the snap of the ball out, out of their hand. And that's very much the feeling of a serve. That is an excellent uh, explanation. Appreciate that, Pete. And yeah, I, I know the exact post that you're referencing as far as that uh, debate. There were so many comments on that. But yeah, love that for sure and definitely agree. I mean, I've had quite a few players on the podcast who they've they were multi-sport athletes, um, for example, Tread Huey is an amazing doubles, doubles player and one of my buddies. He, um, he played baseball and he has a huge serve. I mean, the throwing mechanics, knowing them, um, even if it's a little, little variation of this throwing motion, it, it, it really helps a lot. So great stuff there. And as far as the, uh, you know, the serve also like the sp hitting spin. I mean, a lot of players you'll see second serve. They're just, uh, pushing the ball over and this does have to do also with what you mentioned the frying pan grip but how can players generate more spin on their serves that's a great question i mean it, it all it all does start with you do have to have a continental grip you do have to have a continental grip and i think first and foremost one of the things you could do to really start working on the spin again is is breaking things down and we're always in a in a rush to get to the end we just want the spin serve. So we want to do the full motion and we want to feel the spin come off the racket. I, I think a way that you can 
really start to develop spin is to develop ball sense. You know, I think that that's one thing, you know, I grew up playing a lot of hand sports, football, basketball, baseball. So I have what they call good hands. That would be one of the compliments I would remember that would stick out that made me feel good as a tennis player. It's like, oh, he's got really good hands. I mean, I didn't even know what it meant at the time, but I'm just like, oh, yeah, I got good hands, I guess, you know. But <laughs> I think it was from playing so many ball sports as a kid. And so I had good ball sense. Now, if you, if you put things under my feet like skis, uh, a skateboard, like I suck. I can't, I, I didn't, I'm, and I'm terrified. So to develop spin on your serve, I think you want to start really playing with the tennis ball, you know, like, like bouncing it, then trying to put a little bit of side spin as you're bouncing, you know, like if, if you're there getting the ball and you're popping it up, it's too bad this, this is a, this particular part of the podcast, but you know, like you're just hitting the ball straight up, then try and keep it going straight up, but try and cut under it, try and make a cutting motion rather than just a straight up and down motion, if that makes sense. Hopefully people can visualize what I'm saying and get good at that. Try and make, try and make the ball move a lot from just bouncing it and, and, and popping it up in your, and once you start to feel that, now you can start to feel what it's like to cut a ball. And then you can start to feel it when you go to serve. So a lot of great points from Pete on episode 70 of the Tennis Files podcast. It is so true about the serve. The serve, while stationary, you don't have to move uh, to get in position to hit the ball, for the most part anyway. It is still the most complex stroke of all. And I do very much subscribe to Pete's vision about the serve where you need to really break it down into bite-sized parts and master each part so that you can then put them all together later on to have a great serve. And the continental grip is really, really important. Kind of funny, I trained with a great player, uh, I think he's a 5-0 or 5-5 player, Frederick, last weekend, and we were both kind of laughing about it because we were discussing how we actually realized that we weren't quite using continental grips uh, until a recent time ago, actually. And after changing our con- our grips to the continental, we definitely experienced much more spin and uh, being able to hit the ball with more velocity because it really facilitates the throwing motion of the serve. And really important when you're practicing not to keep practicing the same bad habits, as I mentioned previously. And if you want to change your technique, it also really helps to change the environment because when you practice a different technique and you're on the baseline just like you are when you want to serve during a point, then you more so tend to revert back to your old habits where if you maybe just walk to the fence or shift your position and move forward inside the court when you're practicing your serve, for example, then it's a little bit easier to change your technique. And then from there, you can go back gradually to where you normally play, and then you'll have a better chance of changing that technique. And as well, a wonderful tip that I also recently heard from Rick Macy, who's a legend of the game and has coached so many great players like Venus and Serena Williams. The racket drop on your serve should not occur earlier than the leg drive on your serve. So this is what a lot of people do. And I found through video analysis, which is key again, 
of my own serve that a lot of us tend to drop our rackets. So after the trophy trophy position, you actually a lot of us tend to drop our rackets before we are exploding up with our legs, and that's the wrong timing. So if you kind of try that, where you initiate with the legs and then you, you you know then you drop the racket, that will result in a lot more power than dropping the racket and then going up with your legs. So really, really important point there. So I really appreciate that. Uh, well, all those great pieces of advice from Pete. And now let's go to one of my friends, Ian Westerman, which many of you are familiar with from Essential Tennis, one of the biggest online instructional tennis sites in the game. And let's listen in on what he has to say about the game. What are a couple of tips to help us be more successful at playing singles? I think... I think singles is a ve- compared to doubles. Uh, singles is a really simple and straightforward game that I think it really just comes down to a couple really basic patterns of play. And I think the most successful singles players are the the players that are a aware of those patterns, and then b just execute them just with incredible focus and and. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Intention. Like if if you're not aware of the patterns and you're not very purposefully, very intentionally deploying those patterns point after point after point, then it's just a crapshoot who wins each point. If both players have low awareness and both players have low intention about what they're doing, where they're aiming and why, then it, it literally is, it just comes out to a roll of the dice. Like who's going to win each point and who's going to win the match. The reason why you see players like, I mean, Nadal is my favorite example. Ferrer is a great example. There's a lot of professional players out there um, who really exude this kind of principle of just know your role, know the patterns, and then no matter what happens, just stick to that pattern and just and just play play the percentages and grind down uh, your opponent. It's not the right uh, like plan A or playing philosophy for every player like there's different personalities there's different strengths and weaknesses Uh, but if you don't have kind of a foundation of knowledge and execution of those base patterns then building offense or more of an attacking game on top of just kind of crappy discipline and crappy patterns is just going to make success very very difficult Gotcha. And it's awesome stuff. And then, you know, obviously you mentioned that uh, doubles is a little more complex. So any uh, any advice on that front and also, you know, why it's more complex? Oh, man. Yeah, there's double the players. Uh, that's the main thing. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, in, any, in any given situation, you've got um, at, the, at the amateur level, at the recreational club level, whatever you want to call it, generally speaking – You've got an offensive player and a defensive player. It, towards higher levels of doubles, you've got all four players kind of trying to get to the net. That's a that's a pretty small minority of of tennis. Like it's it's not a lot of people as a percentage that are like serving and volleying and attacking right away. Most tennis players, there's a defensive player and an offensive player. And so for me, I think the first level of awareness and the most important one is re- is doing two things. Number one being aware 
of what phase of play you are in with the shot you're about to hit. In other words, is this a defensive shot that I'm in? Am I hitting from below the net? Or am I hitting from far away from the net? Or am I hitting from off the court? Uh, or is it neutral? Is it kind of like 50-50 and nobody really has the upper hand? Or am I attacking? Am I in an offensive position or an offensive phase of play? And then once you've identified if you're neutral, defensive, or offensive, being really, really aware and purposeful about what target you're choosing. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, uh, the, the pattern that, that drives me the most crazy is players and doubles who have an offensive opportunity and they have a choice between hitting towards the other offensive player or the other defensive player. And in doubles, in tennis in general, but doubles in particular, time is unbelievably valuable. And so if you can purposefully choose to hit towards the person with the least amount of time to react in an offensive situation, that should be your choice like 95% of the time. But if you go watch any random doubles match at any random tennis court, you'll see players at the net with high, easy offensive shots hitting back to the person who has three or four times more time to react to that shot, aka the defensive player, aka the player who's back behind the baseline. And that just resets the point, which is ironic because everybody complains about how much they get lobbed and they they get this sitter easy volley and they hit it back to the person who's 40 feet away from them, who of course is going to lob the ball because they're in a defensive situation. And so that's just, you know, one very, like the most obvious example for me, but I think being aware of phase of play and then purposefully choosing the the right target. And so that means if you have a low volley, the worst possible place to hit would be the person close to you because they're in an opportunity to attack. And so that's, that's where you want to target the person further away to, to act as kind of a, a pressure release and hopefully reset the point and have a better opportunity on the next shot. Um, so for me, that's doubles in a nutshell, but I could talk about doubles for literally like 10 hours. Uh, uh, that's like the, I think the first layer. And then from there, it's all about being proactive and doing things ahead of time instead of being reactive, waiting to see what you're receiving and then doing something afterwards, which is again, what the vast majority of tennis players are doing is they're playing their doubles from a reactive mindset and execution instead of a proactive uh, mindset and execution. What are three books that you'd gift to a friend to help them become a better tennis player? Uh, the first one is super easy. I've been kind of obsessed, like I, like I said a little bit earlier, I've been kind of obsessed with with developing kind of a different philosophy or, or process on the tennis court. And okay, so, so there's two books that for me have really influenced that heavily. Uh, the first one is The Art of Learning by Josh Waitskin. Oh yeah, nice. Uh that that really kind of kicked things off for me maybe 4 or 5 years ago, maybe 5 or 6 years ago. Uh and really kind of confirmed a lot of um kind of thoughts that I had in my head or experiences that I'd had on the court and and kind of ways that I've been thinking about the learning process. Uh, so that's the first one. And the second the more recent one which I can't believe I've never heard of this is going to be only the second place, as far as I'm aware, Mirabon. The first place is my own podcast, and now your podcast. I can't believe that this is not like a staple in tennis, and I think it needs to be um, until I write 
my book about this, mm-hmm. uh, which is going to be uh, more tennis focused. But in the meantime, the book Mastery by George Leonard, mm-hmm. is, for for me, it was just completely mind mind blowing and kind of the same same kind of thing. Josh Waitzkin's book really kind of confirmed a lot of things and really kind of solidified the the path that I felt like I, I was on and gave me kind of the next couple steps of vision kind of on the path that I was taking. And the same kind of thing, but now, I don't know, maybe a year ago, I got Mastery by George Leonard. Mm. And there's like actual, there's multiple pages of like tennis specific examples in this book. And it's all about uh, mindset and process around mastering a skill. Mm. And the fact that I've never heard of this book from any other tennis source frankly to me is just kind of embarrassing uh i'll just be super like transparent mm-hmm. um i think the content in that book is exactly what's missing in tennis coaching not all tennis coaching but I, when i say tennis coaching i mean in a very homogenistic like holistic you know like the state of your average tennis lesson i think is m- absolutely missing uh, what's in that book. And it's really what I'm passionate about. And I'm, I'm working on a book right now that's just going to kind of be a compilation of lessons or uh, mindsets or um, insights into tennis. But hopefully, as soon as that book is done, I'm going to start working on a second book, which is going to be all about the learning process and the teaching process uh, around tennis. But it'll be, be kind of apply universally applied to any getting better at anything because uh, i think there, there's principles that apply universally to improvement in any kind of skill or discipline and i, I think there's a just a massive amount of misinformation and misunderstanding in tennis and i'm sure in other disciplines as well about how that actually happens and how to facilitate that as a coach or how to facilitate that for yourself if you don't have the finances or you don't have the access to to uh a great coach. Uh, so yeah, I don't, I'm, so yeah, neither of those are tennis books. Um, man, you asked for three. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, winning ugly or something. What everybody, <laughs> everybody says winning ugly. So that's number three. There you go. <laughs> All right. Great stuff. Once again, from my man, Ian Westerman. And those clips came from episode 60 of the tennis files podcast. So once again, you can go to tennis slash 61. I think you're seeing the pattern here tennisfiles.com slash and then the number of the corresponding episode. So a couple great lessons from this one is that regarding the singles uh, winning patterns, I mean, a lot of times the key here is to not try to figure out some crazy complex pattern or strategy, but really just find a couple winning basic patterns and then to focus the and then to execute them rather with great focus and intention. So for example, let's say I'm playing a player who has a much weaker backhand. Basic strategy, try to keep hitting uh, actually cross-court forehands and pull them a little bit wider each successive time if I can, and then that's when I go to the backhand and establish the backhand-to-backhand pattern, assuming that I am not able to get to the backhand, you know, initially or within the first few strokes of the rally so just basic patterns like that um or oh the guy the guy or gal is a pusher as you everybody likes to call him so i need to get to the net 
just basic patterns, you know, nothing, nothing crazy, but try to figure those basic patterns out and then really focus and hone in on executing them and try not to think about other, you know, things like the results of the match and things like that. Just execute, execute, execute. So that's fantastic. And then some great insights by Ian on the doubles game, which is that you really need to know what type of situation you're in, whether it's whether you're in a neutral or defensive or an offensive position, and then being purposeful about the shot you're hitting based on your positioning. And as well, something that I see a lot in USCA leagues especially that we both mentioned on that particular podcast clip there is the unwillingness of players, and perhaps you can identify yourself if you are one, where you're playing doubles and you get a short ball and you just hit it back to the opponent at the baseline. Like I'm not saying that you need to just pummel the ball intently at your opponent at your net opponent's face or something like that, but just play smart and if you're trying to win out there, then you need to do you need to employ the best strategies that you can and this is part of it just hitting to the net player who's going to have a lot less time to react than the player at the baseline assuming that is their formation at the time one up one back and then some excellent books that Ian recommended and they don't always have to be tennis specific books to really help I mean I actually have been reading a great book by Ray Dalio who's an incredible investor and it's called Principles and that is a great lesson many lessons of course but um you know just uh, great lessons into how you can improve your lives through uh learning certain principles i won't give the book away but you should really check it out and uh it, it's it improves your life and also continually helps you improve evaluate and improve basically but as well uh, the books that were mentioned here and i'll list them in the show notes they are The Art of Learning by Josh Waitskin, who I believe is a, was a champion chess player. Um, uh, so yes, that's a great one. I've heard a lot about it. I actually need to pick it up myself. And also Mastery by George Leonard. So those are the two that Ian mentioned, along with Winning Ugly, which was a throwaway, I would say, when he mentioned it. But uh, still a great book, of course. Uh, by Brad Gilbert, who's a great coach and commentator. All right, so the next clip that I want to play for you is an interview, a podcast interview with 17-time Grand Slam champion Gigi Fernandez, and here it is. See, you said that you just repeated it to yourself, but I mean, was that really like all it took or was there any extra training besides that uh, supplementary training to get yourself to not think about the outcome? Cause like you said, it is really tough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. So what the other thing I did in 92 was I learned how to meditate. And that also was very monumental for me because I'm a very emotional, uh, very passionate player. Um, and I would have a hard time controlling my emotions during a match. And the act of meditate, meditating taught me how to, change one thought for another without judgment or emotion. So when you're meditating, your your mind constantly wanders to other things and you have to bring it back to your mantra or to your breathing without judgment or emotion, without getting mad at yourself for, um, for letting your mind wander. So how that would translate into a match is s- simply that. I would 
if I would have a thought that it was non-productive or I didn't need to have, then I would just bring it back to, okay, I, I got to win the next point. And it basically is a skill that I developed because I was not born mentally tough. I was um, actually quite the opposite. I used to break so many rackets. I can't even tell you and how many rackets I've broken in my life. And um, I used to pay my fines to the WTA before the year started. <laughs> I would just send them money and I would say, okay, here's my money for my fines. Let me know when I owe you more. So, so yeah, the, so it, being able to control my, my mind and my thoughts um, was, was the key. And, you know, and I encourage anybody out there to learn how to meditate. It's, it's it only takes 20 minutes out of your life um, a day. And it's really still useful to this day. It's still a very valuable lesson that I learned. So, yeah, yeah, that's wonderful, GJ. I appreciate you mentioning uh, meditating. I mean, I actually meditate every single morning for between between ten to twenty minutes, depending on how much time I have. And I, you know, I value it so much that I was actually at a, a training for work the other day, and they said to mention two interesting things about you. And my second one was that I, I said that oh, I, I love to meditate, and I was hoping that it would actually impact somebody. And at the end of the training, somebody came up to me and said, oh, I, I heard that you say that you meditate. And, and so we started talking about it. So I was really happy that, you know, somebody was interested. But I really encourage everybody to try to meditate. Uh, even just a few minutes a day can really impact uh, your life. So, um, yeah. And, and so obviously, um, you know, the, the game always evolves and things like that. And I was just wondering if you, you have observed any changes in doubles, uh, from when you played it to today. Yeah. Well, there's definitely, um, less, less net play. A lot of people staying back the ground strokes. The technology has allowed the ground strokers to be good at doubles. You know, in my era, if you were not good at net, you did not win. You could be in the baseline all you want, but you were not going to penetrate. Uh, you weren't going to penetrate the wall at the net. And now with the technology, um, that's not so. So, uh, however, even though people are staying back, uh, the statistics show that the majority of the points are still either won by errors or by the person at the net. So from the 2015 Australian Open, uh, 2015 men's and women's, the entire doubles draw, 60% of the points ended in an error. And of the 40% of the points that were winners, 3% were won by the baseliner. So don't be fooled. I want players listening not to be fooled into thinking that playing from the baseline is what the pros are doing. Because what they're doing is they're setting up the net player to put it away. They're not trying to hit winners from back there. And then the other way that I, I, I think significantly has changed the game is from, from back when I was playing, with, oh, when I started rather, with wooden rackets and metal rackets, where everybody hit the ball flat. Nobody could really hit topspin or cross court. And I think this whole concept of following the ball and moving with your opponent came from that. Because when, when you could only hit the ball flat, your, your choices were to hit down the line or through the middle. But when, once everybody, you know, got, once the technology advanced and everybody got better rackets and better strings and everybody can hit a ball cross court, everybody can hit the cross court winner. So, um, so I think we, this following the ball concept that I'm, that I talk about a lot or not following the ball concept, uh, I think comes from, from your wooden racket days where, like I said, people would have to shift over to cover the down the line shot because that's what people would hit, but now, but not anymore. So I think people, um, when they hear me say, I, I don't teach follow the ball, they're 
some some people even the other day I was at a conference with Stan Smith and I I was asked what's the number one advice you give professional or you give amateurs and I said don't follow the ball and he looked at me like I was from outer space it's like yeah because he also learned how to play with the wooden racket and he he never had opponents that could just rip the ball cross court for a winner so anyway that's kind of I went on a tangent but. <laughs> No, that's great. I mean, awesome uh, observations. Appreciate that. Um, very high level. And so, you know, obviously, Gigi, you out of all the Grand Slams that you've won and number one rankings, the gold medals, Fed Cup victories, and, and all the other titles, what do you consider your most important accomplishment to you uh, in your pro career? Uh, I think winning the first gold medal. Um, and that's because the Olympics are universal. I mean, everybody in the world knows what the Olympics are. And you know, I could come home. Uh, I could come home in a summer where I'd won the French Wimbledon, the U.S. Open, and nobody would know. But the year I came home with one Olympic gold medal, everybody knew, and everybody would stop me in the streets and congratulate me, and stop me at the restaurants and want my autograph. So, um, so yeah, it was definitely winning the the first gold medal. Yeah, I mean, just such an incredible experience, and you know, doing it for your country as well as even more meaningful um just wondering if maybe you can give us a couple insights of you know how you felt you know at the like playing at the olympics and how it may be different from uh you know regular tour level matches and grand slams um yeah i mean playing for your country is pretty special just being picked uh is pretty cool the level the level of stress and pressure playing for your country is like quadrupled i mean you feel this incredible sense of responsibility and um and i think maybe why i played some of my best matches when i was representing my country is because i really felt like i had to behave i couldn't act up i i couldn't tank i couldn't give up i had to give it i had to give my all because it was such a i was i felt so responsible that i'd been picked so um so yeah it's pretty cool it's pretty cool to represent your country for sure Gigi, and you know, obviously, in, in researching you know, more of your background, uh, you know, it, I realized that you you won at least one Grand Slam title from every year from 1988 to 1997, except for 1989, uh, which is incredible. And also for three straight years, you won three uh, three Grand Slam uh, titles as well in the same year from uh, 1992 to 1994. So. I mean, this is obviously amazing, and I wanted to ask you how you were able to keep up this world-class level of consistency and winning through all those years. Well, that's a good question. You know, when, you, when you're going through it, you're not thinking about, uh, oh, my God, I've, you know, I've made three this year, I've made two this year. You just all, you're just kind of trying to win the next one, you know, and you're trying to win the next one, and you're trying to win the next one. So I think when you look back, and you compile it, you're, then maybe you can be impressed. But while it's happening, you're, we just get so focused on the next one, you know. So after I won, after I went around slam, I was immediately focusing on trying to win the next one. Um, so, so I mean, I had good partners. Fourteen out of the seventeen um, were with Natasha, uh, and that was in a five-year span that we won those fourteen. So that was a pretty good clip. Um, and we just clicked. I mean, I don't know. People ask me all the time to try to explain our partnership. And it's st- still hard to explain because, you know, at the time, those players played singles. I mean, singles players played doubles. So Navratilova, Shriver, Novotna, Sanchez, even Steffi Graf and uh, Sabatini. 
uh, all, Martina Hingis, Lindsay Davenport. These are all number one, number two, number three singles players. Uh, Natasha and I were, so I was somewhere in the thirties, most of my career. She was somewhere in the tens, 10 to 15. She cracked the top 10 a couple of times, but how did the, how did together we'd be players who were like better than us. They were, had better forehands, better backhands, better serves, better overheads, better everything, right? We weren't better than them. So um, I think it was really the fact that we really understood doubles and we always played the percentages and we had, um, I think, the ability to perform under pressure because we consistently hit the right shot. We weren't trying to necessarily hit the winners. We were always trying to set up the partner to win the point and we were always trying to force the error from our opponent which is what I coach now people play doubles and they get they think they have to hit winners they think they have to win the point I was never thinking how am I going to win the point I was always thinking how am I get Natasha to win this point for me um so to diff- definitely a different mindset but a very very valuable one when you're when you're playing doubles all right more fantastic stuff from Another guest of the podcast, Gigi Fernandez, and you can find her entire interview with me at tennisfiles.com slash 59. So that's episode 59 of the Tennis Files podcast. What I really love about Gigi's uh, interview in particular is that she mentioned how she learned how to meditate, and that really changed her whole attitude and her... A performance and you know, she used to break rackets and after learning how to meditate then she had a lot of great success and I talk about this a decent amount on the podcast and on other platforms but meditating has made a huge impact in my life as well I actually am also uh, prone to get less angry because I meditate and my focus has improved a lot and I feel that the alone time Uh, Trying to increase my focus and be more aware of my thoughts is just incredible as far as helping me in all facets of my life. So I really love that Gigi mentioned how learning to meditate helped her a lot. And also, another thing that I have heard quite a bit uh, that Gigi mentioned is that doubles has evolved now. So there is more successful baseline play not not to say that the the net two two up is still uh, the most solid position to be in but i also do remember talking to Dennis Kudla interviewing him uh actually the point that he made here was i don't think on the podcast but when i interviewed him at the city open along with Francis Tiafo and uh, both um mid-atlantic natives of course but Dennis mentioned how they're they're able to be successful even having one person back at the baseline just banging the ball because of the change technology and the rackets and things like that. So I thought that was just interesting that Gigi also mentioned that. And the key to winning at a high level as far as Gigi is concerned is that you really need to just keep focus on trying to win the next one. So sometimes we wonder, and this is why I asked Gigi, is that how can somebody like Federer or Nadal or Djokovic just keep winning so many (laughs) incredible tournaments, the highest level tournaments in the world, so many at a time or in a row. And Gigi did that with Grand Slam doubles titles, I think three 
three Grand Slam doubles titles for many years in a row. And the key there was just to keep focus on trying to win the next one. And that's what it is. You know, you don't stop and and be satisfied. Oh, I, I did this. I mean, of course, it's important to celebrate your victories, but then you have to refocus on the next task. This is why sometimes you see certain players are inconsistent. It's because, let's say, they reach some sort of a goal or accomplishment, and then they just take it easy, and they think they're the best. And then meanwhile, other people, hopefully like us, are working hard to overtake them. And that's exactly what happens. So you have to keep focused on trying to win the next one, uh, the next tournaments, the next matches, and trusting the process. And uh, that's it. So next clip for you is from my interview with Alistair McCaw. And he is a fantastic coach, uh, mainly I'd say on the fitness side. And he has coached some great players, including Kevin Anderson, actually. Uh, And uh, you're going to hear about his thoughts on uh, optimizing your performance. So without further ado, here is the clip. Uh, You know, you talk about vision and how that's kind of, you know, you have to have the right sort of vision uh, in contrast with maybe visions of, uh, you know, dreams of grandeur and things like that. So how do you guide your athletes to develop the right type of vision that will help facilitate them achieving their goals? Well, you see, there's two dynamics here and there's, there's the pushing and there's the pulling. And, you know, a job as a coach is to in a way facilitate and, and push the athlete and take them to places they've, they, they never feel they, they could have got to. However, at the end of the day, it comes down to the athlete, their, their desire, their motivation, um, and their vision. And, and the vision will pull you. When that vision is strong enough and that purpose is strong enough, that's going to pull you. So, you know, it's, it's, I know coaches that are listening out there, they've, they've maybe had a kid in front of them who's super skilled, got great potential, but, you know, they don't love the game or, or they don't want what the parents maybe want, for example. Um, you see, there's no, there's no vision there, uh, f- from that kid personally. So a vision is just so, so important. Um, you know, some like to, to refer to it as a dream. Um, I don't particularly like w- using the word dream. Um, dream is something that uh, is happening uh, in your sleep in a way, as where a vision is a, is a conscious decision and something you see on a, on a daily basis and something you have control of to think about on a daily basis. So um, even as a kid, I can remember visualizing myself standing on, on top of the world championship um, uh, podium uh, visualize myself getting getting national colors. Visualize myself getting uh, to the start line at a at a world championship event. You know these type of things where it starts. It can start at a very young age. Yeah, Lester, and you know something that I thought was just incredibly brilliant uh, that I read in Champion Minded was that you know when you were a uh, younger kid, you you stuck a sign above your bed uh, so that you that said Alistair McCaw World Champion. So that you know, every morning when you wake up, you'd see it. So, I, what, what prompted you to do that? Was that just on your own volition, or did somebody advise you to do that, or how how that happen? No, I mean, it was just—it's hard to explain. Um, it's just something I had from a very young age, just the determination to to be a champion or, or be something um, exceptional in in a sport. Um, you know, I first wanted to be be a tennis player, but. It was pretty tough from a financial point of view uh, growing up. So I took up running, which which was obviously cheaper, and then from there went into triathlon and duathlon. Uh, 
ultra distance sports. Um, but yeah, from a young age, I can remember uh, writing quotes, uh, sticking them above my bed. Um, you will be a champion. You will make this happen. And that was as early as 10, 11 years old. So um, no, um, my parents never pushed me. Um, they hardly came to, to, to see me compete or play, which I'm grateful for. Uh, they loved me, of course, but they just said, hey, uh, you get out there, you learn the life lessons, you fight your own battles. Um, and so, yeah, that motivation was just, it, it was just intrinsic. It, it was just, I love to do it. And, um, yeah, that, that's how it came about. I mean, that's really incredible, Alistair. I applaud you for that. And so, you know, it's kind of going around that theme. Uh, a lot of us, we obviously hit these critical points where we know we need to make the right decision. Let's say we need to work out or we need to, uh, you know, write a chapter. Um, but then we have this feeling of uh, laziness or wanting, wanting to feel comfortable or s temptations or whatever it is. And that overcomes uh, the ability to make the right decision. And so how can people overcome this feeling and, and make the right choice in the face of, uh, you know, adverse uh, choices? Again, it comes down to how deep your purpose is because motivation is something that you you continually have to keep uh, working on. Um, you know, even the most positive people uh, aren't always positive. Uh, the differences in how quick they can get rid of negative thoughts. And, you know, people see me as positive and inspiring, and which is which is nice. But I also wake up sometimes not feeling motivated or, or, or feeling like, like doing what I'm supposed to do. But I suppose that's where that that foundational um, discipline comes in and something I speak about in the book about uh, your competitive um, uh, discipline coming from foundational discipline. And that foundational discipline is just what you do on a daily basis, waking up in the morning. Uh, for example, I have a morning routine, uh, which gets which gets me in the right frame of mind. I make my bed every morning, regardless if I'm staying at home or in a hotel. Uh, again, um, the routine of, of reading, the 20-minute routine of stretching. And, you know, before I walk out the door, uh, um, I've already achieved five or six things, which, which makes me feel good and puts me in the right frame, frame of mind of discipline. So um, I think that's what it comes down to. You need structure. You need um, continuous self-talk. Um, I mean, it's, it's something that's a skill that you have to work on every day. And, and it's you know, it's not a gift. It's not a talent. It is really something you make a conscious choice to live a more positive lifestyle, be more um, accepting of your weaknesses, accepting of your um, your imperfections. And I think that's that's where you come to a place of, in a way, serenity and and um, and just getting more more done from yourself, not being so hard on yourself, for example. Well, I really appreciate that, Alistair. And, you know, part of this uh, podcast is just trying to examine, uh, you know, world-class, uh, you know, athletes, coaches, uh, and the best, you know, in the business and what they do. And so you mentioned, obviously, your morning routine. And I want to just maybe dive a little bit deeper into that, uh, which you outlined in the book. And can you kind of go into, uh, you mentioned some of them, but your your morning routine, you know, once you wake up, what, what you do and and the purpose for doing each one of those things? All right. Well, I get up. I get up between four thirty and five a.m. in the morning. Um, you know, people people usually ask me, "Hey, what time do you get up?" And my question is always, 
you should be asking me what time I get to bed because that's the most important mm -hmm. uh, question, not time, what time you get up. So um, I, I get into bed around about 9.30 and then lights out by 10. I like to read uh, and do some self-reflection. Um, but morning routine, first things first, coffee. <laughs> I, can't, I can't start my day without, without a, a cup of joe. Um, then I'll, I'll check my Twitter uh, which uh, which I obviously follow inspirational people and I get a dose of positivity and good news. First of all, I don't follow any negative uh, negative stuff. So I'm already getting my myself into the right frame of mind. Um, then I'll do a, a, a conscious 20 minutes of reading. It might be something spiritual. It might be something uplifting or it might be just part of the book I'm reading at that moment. Um, and then I'll get... Uh, I'll get dressed and, and I'll do my stretching and foam rolling uh, routine uh, every morning, which, uh, which just keeps me feeling healthier. And, um, and then I'll have, have breakfast, shower, get, get ready for work and leave. And usually I'll listen to a podcast in the car, even if it's for five, 10 minutes. Um, I'm just, you know, putting some positivity in, in my head and making sure I step into the, uh, into the workplace in a really positive and uplifting mood. Um, and then later on in the day, I'll have a 20 minute nap, which is, which is vital, uh, just to switch off mentally and physically and, uh, and have a, a really good second, second part of my day. So I call them the four, four twenties. Um, one, sorry, one other one was thoughtfulness, um, consciously thinking about other people. Uh, for example, somebody that's maybe playing a match that day, somebody that's writing an exam, somebody that's maybe ill, um, sending them a message. So I consciously will in a way look at my phone. And think of people of who might need a message that day, and um, yeah, those are those are what I call my four twenties. Those are the most important uh, mini routines of the day. I think it's really fantastic that you talk about that in the book, Alistair, because I mean, morning routine really can make uh, an incredible impact on your day. I mean, I know for me, and everyone's different, but I, I always like to wake up and then do some sort of uh, you know activity, exercise. Usually, go to the gym. Um, and then meditate and then uh, write, uh, you know, in a journal just for a couple minutes to uh, talk about what I'm grateful for. Um, and, and you, uh, you know, I guess this is a good segue to training journal, uh, having one, because you actually, I read in the book that you have kept a training journal since you were 11 years old, uh, which is really uh, amazing and a testament to, uh, you know, your, your success and discipline and, and you in general. And so can you talk about the importance of having a training journal and, you know, what type of information we should be recording in it? Well, um, no matter what you're doing, you, you want to get the best performance out of yourself. So you might be an athlete, you might be a coach, you might be um, in corporate business, whatever it may be, you know, the goal should be that you're striving to get the best from yourself. Um, you know, when I ask the question in workshops or conferences, uh, who wants to be mediocre? There's not many hands that go up or there's, there's no hands that go up. Everybody wants, wants greatness in their lives. But, um, a journal for me growing up as an athlete was, was a, a, a way of just having pride in, in the work I was doing. Number one, number two, it was to, have something to look back on on the previous season to see what worked and what didn't work. Um, also to keep a, you know, to keep notes of um, how I felt. Um, uh, I mean, I, I kept everything in there from my heart rate to the temperature I was training in. I was, it was really, really detailed, even at such a young age. So 
um, it was something that gave me confidence. It was something that gave me pride. It was something I could self-reflect in. Obviously, as the years has gone on and I no longer compete at that level, um, a journal has, has stayed just as important from an aspect of, of um, writing down my gratitude in there, obviously having my schedule for the day, uh, my meetings, my appointments, um, my trips, for example. And then at the end of the day, I always um, spend just a few minutes writing down my self-reflection for the day. Um, what I felt I did well, what I felt feel I could do better in, um, and also where I felt I moved forward, where I got better that day. So again, it's just something that, um, you know, I've always believed in putting pen to paper. Uh, there's just something about that, just like how I like my books as well. I like the book in, in my hand and I'm not a huge, uh, digital or, or Kindle fan, for example, but some people like that, but uh, I think if I had a Kindle, there would be a lot of uh, highlighter marks on the screen because mm-hmm. I love to I love to highlight in books. So yeah, that's that's the importance of keeping a journal. Just the pride of it. Um, it builds self confidence and it obviously gives you something to look back on and see what you did well or or didn't. All right, some fantastic takeaways from Alistair's episode. And if you want to check out the full interview with Alistair McCaw related to this particular clip, because I've actually had him numerous times on the podcast, uh, fortunate enough to, to do that. Uh, Alistair's episode is episode 54 for this one. So you can go to tennisfiles.com slash 54. And of course, with all of these episode numbers that I've mentioned, just go to the podcast app of your choice as well and check it out there. They're in order, so it should be easy for you to do that. And um, some some fantastic lessons from this one. Uh, it's really important to have that foundational discipline. It all starts there. I mean, you can try your best to employ other different uh, tactics or hacks, but if you don't have the foundations set where you're, you're disciplined and uh, you're on time and you have a purpose, then things won't work out as well as you want them to. And I love this. I, I mentioned them a, a couple of clips ago, but morning routines are super important, at least to me, and I think they can make a huge difference in your life as well to help you get in the right frame of mind. There's many books out there that can help you with that. Well, one of them is actually The Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod. If you read that book, I am sure that it will change your life. And his book starts with a a very touching story about adversity that Hal experienced and then goes through how you can actually, even if you're not a morning person at all, you're a night owl, you can change your life and success by actually carving out time in the morning and following what's call, what is called SAVERS. So that's an acronym, S-A-V-E-R-S, but uh, involves many of the same things that Alistair does and that I do as well. Things like uh, journaling, exercising, um, meditating, uh, gratitude, things like that in the morning really start you off right, so it's fantastic. And what you also need to do is make a conscious choice to live a more positive lifestyle. That is what Alistair decided, decided to do, excuse me, and what I have decided to do as well. And it really makes a huge difference when you approach life with that frame of mind. It's also very important to accept your imperfections and also really embrace them because that's what makes you unique 
And sometimes that is really what is going to propel you.、Uh, what is going to propel you in life actually is certain imperfections that you may have that you may view negatively, but may actually turn out to be an asset. And so, another great thing here is when you're talking about having a morning routine, of course, you really need to be talking about what time you're getting to bed. So, that is something that I Definitely has struggled with. I mean, there's so many distractions pulling away,、uh, pulling, pulling you in, I guess. You've got YouTube, social media, your phone, and、uh, a lot of things. So it's really important to dedicate yourself to sleeping early. I think that is actually what is the real catalyst for having a great day, at least for me, is getting into bed early. That's how I have a Morning routine where I'm actually awake. <laughs> so it's huge there. And I want to play a clip for you from a great female professional tennis player, very cool person, and great dancer as well. I met her at the City Open Player Party last year. And this is a clip from my interview with professional tennis player Jamie Loeb. What are some big differences that you've seen between college tennis players and、uh, pro level players? Pro tennis is very selfish, very, very selfish. And sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a bad way. I try not, like, you know, I'll never do anything to like hurt anyone or, you know, do something shady, but you have to, you have to make some selfish sacrifices,、um, miss certain things, or say even doubles. You say you're going to play with someone and then you guys. You know, you're not going to get in, so then you have to like find someone else.、Um, and I think people, I learned to take care of my body much better when、um, on, on tour than in college. I, I mean, it's, it's physically more demanding now, too. The level is different, so you have to be more careful with your body and do all the little things and the right things.、Um, you know, my dynamic warm ups have gotten more intense.、Um, you know, Taking things more seriously than I did in college. Just the levels are different. So you can get away with things in college, but you can't get away with those things on tour if you want to be successful. Interesting. That's really interesting. And so, like you mentioned, that your dynamic warm up is more intense. So, is that just the duration or like, is, I mean, because like when I think of dynamic warm up, I'm thinking, uh, oh, you know, like I just want to make sure that I get. Warmed up enough to play, but like what what did you change in your dynamic warm up?、Uh, I mean, I've added more mobility to make sure that I'm loose. I mean, everyone has certain restrictions. I have my restrictions, so I make sure I target those areas and spend more time there.、Um, and just, you know, making sure I'm like ready to go, like whether I'm practicing for 30 minutes, for an hour and a half, or two hours, three hours, like just making sure like I'm ready to go and like. I'm not going to waste time on court and,、um, you know, kind of get in that mind frame when you're warming up and just be a little more focused and in tune of what you're doing. Awesome. Yeah. I really like hearing how important, like, even little things like, well, supposedly little things like the warm up、yeah. are. Cause,、uh, you know, I, I guess from your vantage point, you're, you're thinking, like, I need to do this to perform my best. And cause a lot of people, I mean, mostly amateurs, they'll, Blow off the warm up. But I mean, if you think kind of long term about how much it's going to help you or like stretching, how much it's going to help you not feel like crap, then 
uh, yeah. you're, you're more likely to do that. So that's great stuff. I appreciate that. So I know I just asked you about a, a typical day training in college, but I'm also curious about your typical day of training while on the tour. So like practice or when I'm... Oh yeah, I should specify. Yeah, so let's go with a week that you're not playing at a tournament or that it's not coming up. So I guess like more training mode. Yeah, so um, once again, if there's court availability in New York, mm-hmm. um, normally it'd be two sessions, two hours in the morning, two hours in the afternoon, or two hours in the morning, hour and a half in the afternoon. Um, fitness, sometimes in between and after, or sometimes right at, uh, just afterwards. Um, really depends on um you know how i'm feeling as well but sometimes double sessions of tennis and fitness sometimes one session of each so um i mean it's kind of up to me and what the coaches think so it varies gotcha and i guess a lot of people are totally confused as far as how many days a week to lift like you know lift heavy lift light should we even lift and how to partition their fitness i was just curious how much of the fitness training you do is weight training you know i think definitely um like three three days a week Mm -hmm. at least when i'm at tournaments i've done a much better job of maintaining my fitness whether it's you know if i have a day off like doing light stuff in the gym on a day off or like, you know, going for a little run or doing like a little bit of weights or core or whatever. But in the past, I was always, there, I was always so hesitant to do anything at a tournament because there's this conspiracy, conspiracy that you're going to get sore. And a lot of people, a lot of players shy away from doing fitness at tournaments when I realized like, look, I, I train more than I'm actually, you know, playing matches. And if I can sustain that training on a day-to-day basis, I know there's more emotions and nerves involved in a match, but like I can still do something when I'm on the road. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'd say it's strength training when I'm home, like three days a week. Awesome. That's very helpful. And so I, I know that obviously a lot of players have coaches, a lot don't. Um, but do you travel with a coach and, and if so, how frequently does your coach travel with you to tournaments? Yeah, so my coach is Felix. Like I said, he's in Florida in Pro World. So he moved there um, exactly a year ago. So um, I would say he comes with me half half the amount of time. I mean, obviously it's um, costly financially, but um, he also works at the academy, so he can't take off a ton of time. But sometimes I like being on my own. Um, it's good to be independent and kind of do things by yourself. Um, I've had my best results when I've been by myself, which is strange enough. Um, I've won every pro tournament by myself. Uh, actually the very first one I, Jay was there, but, um, other than that, yeah, I won every other one by myself. So that's pretty interesting. And I, but I, I do like having a coach there and, you know, someone to just another set of eyes, um, someone to do extra stuff with after a match or after a practice, if you want feeding or, you know, any specific stuff, it's nice to have. And just, you know, the, the tour is lonely. So just to have someone there, someone to have dinner with, to like, you know, talk to, like interact with. Yeah, for sure. Um, and uh, do you ever also travel with, cause I know like some, uh, I guess may, mainly like top 10, I don't, I don't know, but like they travel with like a, a huge crew of people. So do you travel with physios or stringers or anything as well? 
<laughs> funny if I had the money for it, maybe, <laughs> but <laughs> not where I'm at. Um, I mean, maybe for top 10, you can afford a stringer. I don't think I've seen anyone with a stringer, personal stringer on tour. Um, I had a, a trainer, my trainer who I used um, last year and the year before, he he went to like two two tournaments with me. Uh, just him, but like I said, it's expensive, and um, you know the USTA does a good job of providing um, either physio or strength and conditioning coach or um, a regular coach to a lot of the tournaments in the states. So I make use of those uh, resources, and uh, it's definitely helpful. All right, I hope you enjoyed that clip from my interview with Jamie Loeb. Great professional tennis player on the WTA tour and that was from episode 66 of the Tennis Files podcast which you can find at tennisfiles.com slash 66 for the interview in its entirety and some great points from Jamie a couple of them that I would like to illustrate or mention I guess is first taking care of your body uh, on the tour just how incredible that is how incredibly important and I mean, not just for the tour, I'm telling you, I mean, me being in my 30s now, not mid-30s yet, but uh, getting there, and I actually wake up most days pretty sore, I'd say. Even though I stretch after tennis, I feel sore, and so I make it a point to get a light jog in and then to uh, perform some dynamic warm-ups as well, and then also to stretch, and it really makes a huge difference. I actually just came off the court recently uh, today, um, earlier this evening, and I played great. And I can attribute that to my focus on my stretching and trying to make sure that my hips are more mobile uh, because I have definitely had some moments on the court where my hips, I think my hip flexors were just so stiff and I just couldn't move. Um, So taking care of your body, whether it's your strength or endurance and um, your mobility, stability, that's all really, really important, not just on the tour, but also as an amateur tennis player, like most of us all are pretty much. And also, uh, I, I found it interesting how Jamie compared college tennis with the pros and in particular, she mentioned that the dynamic warmups themselves are more intense in the pro tour on the pro tour than in college and you actually i think for most players they wouldn't really think about the intensity of a warm-up you know most people think oh this is just to get me going so that i can actually play tennis for real or something like that but dynamic warm-ups if you actually do them properly you're going to break a sweat for sure i know i do actually when i do my dynamic warm-ups and that's kind of one of the main uh, points of it is to get you to break a sweat so that your body, um, its temperature has risen, and then that means that you're kind of ready to push your body a little bit more now. And uh, yeah, um, I hope you enjoyed that clip with Jamie. And wow, I mean, I am cheating by looking at (laughs) uh, the recorder uh, timer, I guess, if you will, will, but it is about two hours and 25 minutes now of the podcast and that was my intention it was just to be a mega episode and I'm sorry for those of you with small attention spans but hopefully 
if that's one of you, then you just broke up the episode into a few days uh, worth or a few sections worth to listen to. But I hope you really enjoyed it. And I mean, I've done now 100 episodes. So by no means is this uh, group of uh, interviews that I included um, like the only like like the best ones for sure or something like that. I mean, there are also many other ones, but I just couldn't fit them all in. But I really hope you enjoyed this mega episode and celebration of 100 episodes. And I have some very exciting things to come in the near future, which I can't wait to announce. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, huge shout out to Dr. Mark Kovacs, Paul Anacone, Jeff Sosenstein, Will Hamilton, James Blake, Peter Freeman, Ian Westerman, Gigi Fernandez, Alistair McCaw, Jamie Loeb, and of course, all the other wonderful guests that have been on the Tennis Files podcast, and I really appreciate it because none of them had to say yes. I mean, I'm, we're all busy, and many of these guests have huge commitments, and they just carve time out of their day, ranging from half an hour to sometimes like two hours to be on the podcast and to take the time to speak to me and to enrich your tennis knowledge. Uh, it's it's really a great thing that, that they are doing. And I just uh, really appreciate all their efforts and their contributions to the game. And I hope that you enjoyed these interviews. And I can't thank all my guests enough. Uh, and also, if you enjoyed this episode, perhaps you enjoyed at least one other of the hundred episodes I've done, uh, blood, sweat, and tears into all these episodes. Um, seriously, it's, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's fine because I, I just really enjoy them and I feel blessed to be able to talk to such great people and to talk to you and to receive all your fantastic emails and things like that and, and, um, and shows of support. Just, uh, wonderful. It keeps me going. But, where was it going with this? Yes. So if you enjoy the Tennis Files podcast, I would hugely appreciate it if you could leave a review for the podcast. And customarily, when you go into your podcast app, whether that's iTunes or any other podcast app, there'll be a review button. And if you could just leave an honest review for the podcast, then I would really appreciate it. It would really help the visibility of the podcast and uh, for more eyes and ears, especially, to get locked onto the show. And uh, that would be fantastic. And uh, yeah, so if you could leave a review, that'd be wonderful. And I would love to leave you with a quote, as I often like to do at the end of the show. And this one is by Unknown. But, I'm sure someone said this, but I don't know who. And neither does the interweb. But the quote, this unknown individual said... You can feel sore tomorrow, or you can feel sorry tomorrow. You choose. Very interesting quote. I like it. In any case, thank you so much once again for your support and for listening to this podcast. And I'm just trying to continue to talk to get this to two and a half hours. We have a minute and a half to go. No, I'm kidding. I'm not going to do that to you. So we will stop the podcast here. And the first 100 episodes were a great ride, and I hope to and plan to knock on wood produce hundreds more so thanks for all your support and wish you the best and keep playing and keep improving every single day this is Mirban Aranshad from the Tennis Files podcast signing off 
Until next time, take care, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.